When I say autumn, or the harvest season, what comes to mind? Maybe it's colorful foliage, fall hikes, or crisp walks with a sweater and a coffee. For some of our older listeners, it's the smell of burning leaves, or the scent of roasted peanuts from a sidewalk vendor. How about pumpkin picking and delicious apple cider? For New Yorkers on October 3rd, 1951, it was the shot heard around the world. afternoon at the Polo Grounds in Upper Manhattan, the Dodgers and Giants, then still playing in Brooklyn and New York, reminded us that one person's floor is another's ceiling. It's 10.16 in Chicago, and time for the Harvest Moon Festival vocal semifinals on the Arbogast Show. Perhaps it was a cold, rainy night in Chicago, with the radio tuned to WMAQ. That's very well done, Greg and Ed. Thanks. You didn't do anything. If oh, you excuse it. me. I'm sorry. We rehearsed that, that bit for a long time. Greg and Ed and I came through with it in pretty fine style. Remember him? Fred Feinstein? Fred. Oh, Fred, engineer yeah. at WHB. That's right. A long Memphis. time ago, wasn't it? Sure seems like it. Tonight, along with words... Oh, by the way, my name is Jim Flemingway, and tonight we're going to have a show of some sort. We have, along with the words from me and my friend over here, a word from Morris B. Sachs, something about Peter Paul's Almond Joy Candy. And also a word about uh, coffee from the Pan American Coffee Bureau. Tonight, for the fourth consecutive Wednesday, we've got the six top vocal semifinalists chosen as the best of the 18 singers we've had here on the Sid Appleman Show for the last four Wednesdays. Or maybe it has to do with the land itself. This here's my farm. It's about 10 miles over the mountain to Bennington from here as the crow flies. If you ain't a crow, it's a good 18 miles by Shanks Mare around Wilmington Way. Yeah, I've been farming this place for maybe 20 years now. Raised some wheat, little corn, Indian squash, pumpkins, and tapping the maple trees in the spring for sugar. It ain't a bad farm, little up and down hill, but it's mine. Free, clear, and fee simple, and locked in the old tin box. Of course... It was some said we'd never win against the lawyers and the soldiers, but that's because they didn't know New Englanders. This 
is Inheritance, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with the American Legion. There are other things too. Halloween decorations, football on a Sunday, or time spent with loved ones. Whatever the harvest season means to you, it's for gathering the things we've learned throughout the year for the coming holidays. Welcome to October. This is Breaking Walls, episode 120. My name is James Scully. Tonight, we continue our Americana miniseries in autumn with a host of Harvest-centered radio programming. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Autumn, played beautifully on piano by Michael Silverman. For more information, go to michaelsilvermanpiano.com. If before going forward you're looking for Halloween-centered programming, tune into Breaking Walls episode 96. If you'd like to engulf yourself in an October miniseries, tune into episode 108. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is very much on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Well, in those days, you didn't speak of it as a radio job because radio didn't pay anybody any money. All you did was go in and perform. And all you could walk in off the street into any radio station, they were glad to have you. you could, <laughs> if you had a ukulele under your arm, you could go to work for nothing. The so that's what we right. did. <laughs> the price was right. That's what we did. 
we got a little job uh, on a station called WIBO on the north side of mm -hmm. Chicago, up on Broadway near Devon. We got paid there. We did a show once a week on Friday night for which we were paid $10. That was our first pay. Mm -hmm. did you did you write the show yourself, or did you was it an ad lib thing, or what there, kind of a, what was the nature we, of it? We didn't hardly talk. Nobody talked uh -huh. except the announcer. Oh, we sang. Uh -huh. We sang. You were a tenor. Well, we we, we sang together. Uh -huh. We did the duets, and that's what we did in vaudeville too. Jim Jordan was born on a farm near Peoria, Illinois, on November sixteenth, eighteen ninety six. He met Marion Driscoll, a coal miner's daughter, at choir practice. She was born on April 15, 1898. Both wanted a life in the theater. He studied voice, and she played the piano. They were married on August 31, 1918. We met in Peoria, and we were married there in uh, 1918. I started in the business in 1917 in Vaudeville, went to Chicago to, to start. And then in 1918, after I came home and I had to wait for the draft then in April of 1918, we were married in August, and the head of the draft board lived next door, and he told us at the end of August that the war was winding down and I wouldn't be called. We got married on August 31st, and we went to St. Louis to spend a little honeymoon with a sister who lived there, and we were there about five days when I got the summons. <laughs> that, that, that. <laughs> Uncle Sam needed me then, and so I went right in the service. And what, uh, what did you do? Were you over in... Uh, I went to France. Uh, I was in France inside of about six weeks. And the war did end then in November the 12th, or November the 11th, I mean. And I had been in a hospital with dysentery, and we started a show there, and I worked in the show for about five months, an army show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I, we came home in July. By the 1920s, Jim and Marion were performing together on stage, playing in small-town movie houses and lodge halls throughout the Midwest. Their two children, Catherine and Jim Jr., were born at the end of vaudeville tours. Vaudeville wasn't paying off. They went broke in 1923, and Jim went to work in a department store. But the Jordans couldn't stay away from the stage. Jim soon went to Chicago for a traveling musical show. In 1924, the couple debuted on the radio. We lived and they lived and I lived with them in Rogers Park. They were at a neighbor's apartment, very dear friends, Marg and Ted Kaharski. And they had two kids who happened to be the same age of myself and my sister, a couple years older than me. And the K's, as they eventually became known, they decided Kaharski was a little... Uh -huh. I think my dad's brother and maybe his sister were there and the truth is that they might have who knows that they might have had a nip <laughs> <laughs> they could have had a nip and somebody they were playing cards bridge whatever and they were listening in the background of radio and somebody said it, not somebody it was Mark K said you guys are better than those people we're listening to and he said, what are you talking about? And Marg went on and said, there's a harmony team there. That, listen, you hear that harmony team in the background? It's just another harmony team. You're better than they are. We'll make you a bet. You go on down there tomorrow, do an audition. We'll make you a bet they're going to hire you. 
<laughs> they went down the following day, and son of a gun, they got hired. Under that first contract, they were heard on WIBO as the O'Henry twins for 26 weeks. From 1925 until 27, they played over WENR, gradually making the transition to comedy. They were heard in the children's show, The Air Scouts, until December 31, 1929, and both Jim's grab bag and Luke and Mirandi until 1931. Over this early period, they developed dozens of on-air voices. And that's the way we went on the radio in Chicago in 1926. This and was a local, uh, local Chicago yes, outlet? Yes, local. No dough. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> One of those. We'd work at it a while, and then we'd have to go back in vaudeville. But by this time, the fact that you were on radio upped your value a little bit in the theaters in those days, you know, even in vaudeville. We were radio stars, you know. We'd been on radio about three months, and we were stars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We were uh, coming to New York. We had a deal to do the uh, low time with Tim and Irene. Ryan had cooked this up. We had met them. On the way through Chicago, we ran into a a fellow who was a musical director over at a station called WENR. This was in 1927. Mm -hmm. We went over and interviewed them, and we went to work on that station, and we never were off one day from that time until Marion became ill. In 1929, the Jordans met Don Quinn on the former Ruskauer. They became friends, with Quinn penning occasional gags for the couple. Don, do you work with the uh, production itself? I mean, do you attend the rehearsals yourself and so on? I work very closely with the production. Yeah. I see the script all the way through, oh. editing every word, inserting a great deal of my own work, Mm-hmm. Then I attend every rehearsal and every broadcast. This, to me, is one of the writer's obligations, because if anything should happen, if an emergency should arise at the last minute, the writer must be there to be make corrections and changes. If an oh, actor yeah. has an accident on the way to the studio, this leaves a very embarrassing gap in, in a script. Oh, yeah. So I think it's part of a writer's duty to follow through the actual broadcast. Their loose partnership led to success. On Luke and Mirandi, Jordan played a character named Uncle Luke, a fibber of sorts. And Marion was Aunt Mirandi, his wife. They starred in skits on the National Farm and Home Hour over NBC's WMAQ. This would last until 1935. They simultaneously were featured players in a soap opera, The Smith Family. It was this partnership that eventually led to Smackout. On WENR, we worked on farm programs, and we did old rural people. Then we did another show called The Smith Family, in which other people were involved, and Marion did the Irish voice on that, which later became Molly. We ran into a man on the farm program called E.W. Rusk, and he uh, had known about a little store down in Columbia, Missouri, where an old guy that ran this store didn't have anything, and he had everything. If he didn't have it, he'd say, well, I'm smack out of that. I'll have it in the morning. So this man told us this story, and we thought this would be a good idea, so we put it together, made a deal with Don Quinn to write it. The idea that you hired a writer, you kept that quiet. I suppose that's You didn't let anybody know that, or you wouldn't be out of work quick. (laughs) So he started writing Smack Out, and then NBC bought this radio station, and we didn't want to go to NBC because we were playing theaters and doing pretty well because our appearances were announced on the radio station, Mm -hmm. and NBC wouldn't allow that. 
So we went over across the river to a Columbia station, WMAQ in Chicago. Started this show actually over there, and we were only there six months when that station was sold to NBC. So, <laughs> so then we had to go to NBC. That was 1931. This was still Smack Out, though. That was still Smack Out, mm -hmm. and we did that show for four years before anything happened. And we heard about the Johnson Company through an outside source. They wanted to hear us because Mrs. Lewis, and married to Jack Lewis, who was the head of the advertising agency, mm -hmm. Edom Lewis and Brogan, she would listen to Smack Out for about six months. And she knew all about us, and she got her husband to listen. And he got interested, and he wanted to buy us, but they didn't want NBC to know that they wanted to buy us, you see. Yeah. Otherwise, whoop, goes the That's right, up goes, goes the, the price. Yeah. <laughs> So, and we actually went over to another studio over in the other end of town and sneaked an audition for the Johnson Company. And we put the Molly voice, who was Marion's voice, Irish voice that she had been doing in the Smith family, put them all together and did this audition, and Don wrote it, and they bought it. And just like that, on Tuesday, April 16, 1935, at 10 p.m. from New York, Fibber, McGee, and Molly took to the air over NBC's Blue Network. The program would move to Chicago on May 7th. In the fall of 1936, NBC bumped the show to their more heralded Red Network. It would air on Mondays at 8 p.m. On October 5th, 1936, Fibber and Molly went shopping. of Johnson's Wax present Marion and Jim Jordan as Fibber McGee and Molly. Ted Weems and his orchestra open the show with You Know That I Know. Jim Jordan was 79 Wistful Vista, the address of Fibber McGee and Molly right from the beginning in 1935? No, not the beginning. We didn't have an address and we didn't have a house in the beginning. In the beginning, we started selling a wax product called Carnu for the Johnson Company. Mm -hmm. We traveled around in a car for about a year. Really? Yes. What kind of a car was it? Oh, a broken down jalopy, and we'd <laughs> drive into filling stations, and we'd get into the, that would lead into the Carnu uh -huh. commercial. Uh -huh. When they decided to go on with it after the 26 weeks, see, we made a deal. In the beginning, we said we didn't care what money we got. We only cared for one thing. They leave us on for 26 weeks. So when we wanted to settle down, they wanted to put us into a house. You know, have a home. Mm -hmm. So how will we get this house? Somebody conceived the idea of, uh, we entered into a raffle on a real estate subdivision and we won the house in a <laughs> raffle. That's where we got it. And the name of this town that was having this, this place was called Wistful Vista. In, wistful is sad, Vista is view, so Wistful Vista was the place that had a sad view. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where Wistful Vista came from. And then we named our house the same as the town, 79 Wistful Vista. Well, autumn is in the air, and Molly McGee is determined that Fibber get himself a new fall outfit. 
And whom do we find en route to the Bon Ton department store, driving along and looking for a place to park, but Fibber McGee and Molly. Again. What do you mean, look respectable? Think I had as many patches on me as Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> the only difference is that he finally woke up to himself. <laughs> Heavenly days, you look like you'd been hitchhiking in spades. Well, let me tell you, Oh, Molly. stop, McGee. Stop huh? the car. There's a parking space. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get them brakes. <laughs> now, if I can only back in here. Oh, I'm sorry, McGee. We can't park there. It's the fire truck. What say, Molly? I say, don't no Now, what was you saying, Molly? I couldn't hear you for the motor. Oh, dear. What a man. I'll say so. (laughs) Nobody else could have parked in there as graceful. McGee. Huh? Do you see that fire plug? Well, what about it? They got them things all over town. (laughs) Didn't you ever see a fire plug before? Yes, I have. But what do you suppose they paint him red for? Search me. (laughs) They say dogs are colorblind. McGee. Don't you know it's against the law to park against the fire plug? Molly, this is the only parking space for four blocks. And look, we're right in front of the bond tongue, too. Besides, the chief of police is a friend of mine. Come on, Molly. High time you got yourself some clothes. You look like a tramp. Oh, I admit I need some new clothes, but I don't think I look like a tramp. (laughs) Go on, McGee. The back of your pants is so shiny that if you tore them, you'd have seven years' bad luck. Come on. What are you waiting for? Oh, just a minute, McGee. Huh? Look at that little $25 hat in the window there. Isn't it a deer? <laughs> Deer's right. 25 bucks is a whole herd of deer. <laughs> oh, well, come on. We better get started. Watch the revolving door. And don't be a parasite. Push. Hmm. Where are we going first? Well, now, let's get you a hat first. I wonder where the... Ha- Excuse me, sir. Where are the men's hats? Where are what man's hats, Kido? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I thought you were a floor walker. Sure. I am floor walker. Every night I'm walking the floor with my dad. He's a cute kid, too, nearly one year old. Feels a snipe shoots of him. Oh, no. <laughs> well, now, isn't that cute? Oh, that's a cute snapshot, all right. Only one year old. He's kind of bald-headed for a year old, ain't he, bud? McGee. Huh? You're holding the picture upside down. Oh. <laughs> well, you'll excuse me for mistaking you for a floor walker, but you weren't wearing a hat, so I thought you worked here. Don't mention it, Babushka. I am not wearing hats because I am collegiate. University of Russia. Heavenly days, a communist. You a communist, bud? Sure. I am believing in taking everybody's properties and giving them to me. (laughs) Don't argue with him, Molly. You might start something. (laughs) You like waving a red rag in front of a Bolshevik. Well, come on. Here's the hat department. Oh, excuse me, please. Can you wait on us? Well, I certainly can. (laughs) Well, my husband uh, needs a new hat. You're telling me? Hey... Easy there, bud, or I'll slap you down with a piece of wet lettuce. Now, please, no violence. 
How about a nice pork pie? <laughs> We're cold, not hungry. <laughs> oh, heavens, you don't understand. I mean a pork pie hat. They're all the rage now. They're just the latest scream, really. Haven't you seen the magazines for men? <laughs> How'd you ever get a hold of one? <laughs> Heaven. I mean the magazines like Esquire. Oh, our dentist doesn't take Esquire. <laughs> I have it. How about a nice cap? Oh, you got one of them new Cap Calloways, bud? Cap Calloway? Mm -hmm. What's it like? It's got a colored band. <laughs> You get it, Molly? I says the case. Ain't funny, me. Okay, I can take it. How would you like a nice welt on the brim? How would you like a nice kick in the teeth? <laughs> he meant a hat with six edges. Yes. Now, here's one, for instance. Oh, this is a lovely French import. French import, huh? <laughs> Them French will pass the hat once too often in this country. There's a sweet hat over there. Try it on, McGee. All right. Oh, it's too tight for me. Uh, you try it on, Molly. I want to see how it looks on somebody else. All right. <laughs> there. How does it look? Mm. <gasps> Gorgeous. Simply devastating. <laughs> <laughs> does look pretty good on you, Molly. It's cute, isn't mm -hmm. it? How much is this one, mister? Only $10. We'll take it. Hey, I don't want that thing. It's no, too... but I do. I'm buying this for myself. Oh, well, for that... <laughs> I thought we'd come in here to buy me outfit. Oh, I'm sorry, but we haven't a hat small enough for you, sir. Huh? If you'll be in the store a while, I'll look you up a little bit later if I can find something. Oh, Meanwhile, right. I'll go look in the junior department. In the junior... <laughs> well, we'll be around for a while, young man. Yeah. Let well... us know if you find a hat for me. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, will you take this one with you, madam? No. Send it out to Mrs. Fiver McGee, 79 Whistful Vista. USA? C-O-D. Okay. <laughs> now, if you don't mind my saying so, madam, I think a very appropriate hat for your husband would be a coonskin cap. He's the backward, uh, the pioneer type, if you know what I mean. Oh, thanks, but I always thought so myself. You know, my Uncle Clem had a coonskin cap once. Yeah? With a tail hanging down the back of his neck. How'd you like it, Molly? Oh, he was just tickled to death with it. <laughs> well, now, don't forget. I'll look you up if I find something for you. <gasps> Gracious, here's another customer. Oh, that's Perry Como. He's the singer. Really? Mm. <clears throat> sure he is, bud. <laughs> he likes to sing, too. Matter of fact, he'll sing at the drop of a hat. Uh, drop a hat, bud. All righty. <laughs> My kingdom for a kiss. I'd This is something that's very important. We learned that a long time ago with the Smith family. Uh-huh. You painted a picture the same as if you were doing it in a motion picture or doing it on a stage for people to see. You painted that picture so the people could see what they were laughing at. That was mm -hmm. the trick. Mm -hmm. We had a, an expression that we used, that, that don't get the picture. Uh -huh. if, you don't, if you don't make a picture, you're not going anywhere. This is the way we thought about it anyway. But there was a thread of a story. Always. And everything happened around just a little light theme. Yes. I think the genius behind that, of course, was Don Quinn. That's He'd right. come up with this line, and then the, the characters almost... Couldn't all, help but reacting in those different ways. All right? the storylines came out of a meeting. Mm -hmm. not, not that Don didn't bring them in, mm -hmm. but we would hash them over, and people are beginning to realize what a great writer he was now. I was over at Walt Disney Studios yesterday talking to some people. One of these fellows said to me, he said that Don Quinn, he, he was one of the great writers, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And we hear that more now than we did 20 years ago, which is as it should be. 
The season's rating was 11.5, 21st overall. The show continued to take shape over the next three years, first moving out of Mondays and away from CBS's Lux Radio Theater to Tuesday evenings at 9.30 in 1938. In 1939, the show moved to Hollywood. Two years later, they were radio's highest-rated program. You were part of a pretty strong lineup on yes, Tuesday, Tuesday night. night was comedy was night, a, wasn't that's it? That's right. Bob Hope and then mm. Triple McGee yeah. and Bob then Hope then came in a little later. Red Skelton, Skelton was in there. Uh -huh. Then later, Ozzie and Harriet well, and Amos and Andy too. Shopping. Molly not only bought that hat for herself, but she also bought a pair of gloves, a purse. For more information on Fibber McGee and Molly going forward, tune into Breaking Walls episode 103. Here we find them on the fourth floor of the Bonton. Hey, Molly, I thought we'd come down here to buy me an outfit. Oh, don't be selfish, McGee. Just because I saw a few things I needed. Now, I think we'd better get you some neckties and some... Oh, look at that sweet little collar. For a summary of all developments up to the moment, we take you first to Edward Doyce in London. This is London. A British military observer here this morning confirmed that British and Americans had won the first round in the Battle of Tunisia. It was a small round, but nevertheless, he said, that 11 Axis tanks were knocked out before the engagement was presumably broken off. The German radio had claimed earlier this morning that the British Army had reached Tabaka, 65 miles west of Bizerta on the coast road. If this is true, it would indicate that British troops had crossed the gap in the railway line between Algiers and Tunis by means of road vehicles hauled over the mountain barrier at this point. The British observer would not state where this first clash took place. In the 8th Army's advance yesterday, north and south of Benghazi, 28 Axis tanks, 24 guns, and 250 motor vehicles were captured or destroyed between Martuba and Slanta. The Axis air activity was slight, but the RAF again bombed Tunis Aerodrome, scoring hits on hangars. This morning, Soviet communique announced that in the recent three-day offensive on the Volkov front, the Red Army inflicted 5,000 casualties on the enemy. In the Stalingrad area, German infantry and tanks broke through to the rear of Red Army units in one sector of the factory district but the Red Army counterattacked and partly annihilated the two German companies making this advance. In the Caucasus, the Russian forces held the gains made in the past few days. Lavelle is frantically trying to consolidate his position in what the London Times this morning called a paper dictatorship of which the Germans pull the strings. Laval dissolved the Committee for Franco-German Relations and announced that he would appoint a new committee, presumably of outright collaborationists. With the U.S. a year into World War II, the Cavalcade of America was in its eighth season on the air. Its sponsor, the DuPont Company, had profited from gunpowder during the First World War. Years of bad press led them to the ad agency, Batten, Barton, Durston, and Osborne. They wanted a brand perception change. The Cavalcade of America was the answer. Originally heard on CBS, the show featured some of New York's best acting talent. 
During World War II, Cavalcade dramatized tales from the past, as well as stories of American ingenuity and courage. By the time this episode, Feast from the Harvest, aired on November 23, 1942, the show was airing on NBC Mondays at 8 p.m. Cavalcade's November 1942 rating was 11.2. Starring Louis Bromfield in Feast from the Harvest, a Thanksgiving play on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. On our program tonight, ladies and gentlemen, DuPont presents Louis Bromfield, both as author and as storyteller. His play, Feast from the Harvest, is a story of the land. In Mr. Bromfield's words, a story of the earth, which is the foundation of everything. Louis Bromfield as author and storyteller of Feast from the Harvest on the Cavalcade of America. This is the story of a family, and of a valley, and of a piece of land, somewhere in the wide, rich expanse of these United States. The story has no hero, no heroine. It's a story about people. It is about the American people, who in the past have been, and in the future must be, everything this country is and can be. The story happens on Thanksgiving night, where the people of the valley, young, old, and middle-aged, are gathered together in the assembly rooms of the Valley Church to celebrate the richness of the harvest that is to feed us all, ourselves, our allies, and perhaps a little later, the starving women and children of our enemies. It is a tale of the land and of fertility without which all else, even civilization itself, wavers, sickens, and dies. It is the story of the earth, which is the foundation of everything. pumpkin pie and cider for everybody over in the church kitchen. Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, it's Thanksgiving, folks, and before we fall on the food, the Reverend Simpson's got a few words to say. Just a few words of Thanksgiving for all the plenty we got here in the valley. Plenty like nobody else on this earth has got. Yeah, come on up here on the platform, Reverend. All right, now. Quiet, quiet, everybody. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for all the plenty, the peace, the beauty we have here in our valley. 
for the wide fields of corn and the fat cattle, the fruit that comes with the rich harvest season. And, Lord, we ask a blessing upon the boys who are leaving the valley to fight to preserve our liberties. Upon Sidney Wells and Johnny Wells and Hilbert Noyes and upon Henry Drake from Tennessee who is visiting us and going away tomorrow. Bless them all, O Lord, and bring them back as you brought back their fathers and grandfathers from other wars. We thank thee, O Lord, and implore thy blessing. Amen. That was mighty fine, Reverend. Thank you, sir. Uh, all right, now, folks, the grand march to supper. <laughs> Get your partners. Here we go. That was nice of the preacher to ask a special blessing for you, Henry. I sure appreciate it. Everybody's mighty nice to strangers up here. We'd better go and eat. Oh, uh, I don't want to eat right now. I'm not very hungry. Can you wait? Sure, I can wait. What's the matter with you tonight, Henry? Oh, it's such a pretty night. Moonlight and all. Seems a shame to waste it inside. It's a mighty pretty night. Well, what do you want to do? Uh, how about going outside for a little while? It's not cold. Your coat's right there on the wall. I'll get it. Well, what's the matter, Mary? Aren't you and Henry hungry? Oh, we're just waiting until the others get served. Oh, here's your coat, Mary. Oh, oh you're going sparking, eh? Well, okay. ain't, ain't no reason why a young soldier shouldn't go sparking with a pretty girl like Mary. There's been a lot of sparking right here in the Valley Churchyard. Oh, leave mm. us alone, Cal. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's where I got my wife just outside there. Now, take good care of her, young man. You better will. She, she's a mighty pretty girl. Good luck. Come on, Mary. Wish Cal had left us alone. Oh, he didn't mean anything. Just men kind like. Oh, isn't it beautiful? I don't guess there's any place in the world more beautiful than our valley. It sure is. I'd better take my arm. All right. Where are we going? Just over there under the cedar trees. There's an old bench there. In the graveyard? Aren't you afraid? What's there to be afraid of? All my family's in there. My grandfather and my great-grandparents, and way back beyond that. Way, way back to the time of the Indians. That's so. Look. Look at the white mist down along the creek. Like new, clean wool. You know, sometimes on a night like this, I, I imagine them coming into the valley for the first time. Long ago. The first settlers coming up the valley down there where the mist is. Don't it scare you? No, Henry. Oh, there's an owl. Down in my country, they say you better turn your shoe over tonight or you'll have bad luck. <laughs> Silly. You know, you're a funny girl. But I kind of like you. Even if you aren't afraid of ghosts. Mary. What, Henry? What? Cat got your tongue. Hear that train down there? Yes. I'm uh, going away to the army tomorrow. Yes, I know that, Henry. Uh, sure you're warm enough? Maybe you better snuggle up a bit. 
sure, Henry. Mary. Yes, what is it, Henry? What do you want to say? Uh, what was your first kinfolk in the valley called? First kinfolk? Uh, their names were Jonathan and Mariah Ferguson. They're buried right over there. Those two tombstones that are covered with ivy and kind of crumbling. Jonathan and Mariah. Mm-hmm. Funny names like you don't hear anymore. They had a little girl called Sapphira. She was my great-great-grandmother. She's lying over there under the weeping willow. Funny how people go on and get married over and over since the beginning of everything. Mm. Sometimes on nights like this, I think I can hear the sound of wagon wheels and voices calling out way down there in the valley. Sometimes I think people don't die at all. That their spirit just goes on and on forever. You think they're still down there in the mist? Yes, in a way. They're everywhere here in the valley. They help to make the valley. Listen, the foxes are barking up on the ridge. They begin barking about this time of year. They're mating season. Mm -hmm. Listen. The earliest settlers must have heard them, too, when they first came into the valley. I wonder what it was like then, what they were like, those first settlers. next morning, there was more news over NBC about Tunisia. Good morning, everyone. From the NBC newsroom in New York, we call in our correspondents all over the world with direct reports of the latest news. For a summary of all developments up to the moment, we take you first to Edward Doyce in London. This is London. Reports from Algiers about the fighting in Tunis contain a note of caution. It is suggested that the Axis forces have brought across to Tunisia far greater air forces from all over Europe than had hitherto been surmised. The advance of General Anderson's first army is said to be held up by this Axis predominance in the air. The capitulation of French West Africa and Dakar will allow more Allied troops and planes to be moved into Tunis, but speed seems now to be the word. The 8th British Army has entered Jadabia after badly mauling an Italian division which the retreating Germans left behind. Axis forces evacuated the oases of Jallo in southern Libya, and British troops moved in. For many in the United States, 1942's Thanksgiving was a tenuous harvest. The three Red Armies closing the ring around the Germans in Stalingrad made new and successful advances yesterday. The Soviet communicated... This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. 
Whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. Just sit there, Benny, and keep your trap shut. Yeah, one false move and we'll slug you. But, fellas, please, untie me. My program is on. I should be there. I'll lose my job if I miss my first broadcast. You're gonna miss them all, Benny. What? You ain't gonna drive us nuts anymore. For 15 years, we've been listening to that, Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. <laughs> well, we've had enough of it, see? Yeah, let's bump them off. No, 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 no. Please, please don't kill me. I don't want to die. Spare my life. I'll make it worth your while. I'll give you each $10. <laughs> Fellas, don't, don't kill me. Go ahead, Joe. Let him have it. Wait a minute. We ain't had no fun. Let's torture him first. Okay. I'll burn him with my cigarette. No, 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 no. no don't burn me. Don't burn me. Don't. What kind of a cigarette? <laughs> a lucky strike. Okay, burn me. <laughs> burn me where it'll show. After all, lucky strikes are made of the light that night. That fine, that naturally my light, light. Let go of my tongue. <laughs> What's the matter with you guys, anyway? All right, Joe, we've stalled long enough. Lift him out of the chair and lay him on a table. Okay, but I want to do a neat job on this guy. Hand me my rubber gloves. Uh, here. No, no, fellas, don't, don't kill me. Don't, I'll make it $11. I mean it. Don't ready, me. ready. Knife, knife, axe, axe, poison, poison, rope, rope, knife, knife. You've got that already. Thanks, thanks. Please, fellas. Gun, gun, bullet, bullet, oh. atomic bomb. Atomic bomb. What? Give it to him. <laughs> Oh, it's you, Rochester. Yeah. Gee, see what a nightmare I just had. I was with two fellas, two of them. What a horrible dream. Did you get stuck with the check again? <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. I dreamt I was held captive by a couple of thugs. They're going to keep me from going back on the air. It was terrible. It must have been, boss. You look pale. Sick. Let me see your tongue. Ah. Mmm, fingerprints. <laughs> That's funny. There shouldn't be. You wore rubber gloves. What'd you say? Oh, nothing, nothing. You weren't there. Doggone, boss. That sure must have been a realistic dream. Look how you thrashed around in the bed. Yeah. You even pulled an arm off your teddy bear. <laughs> Darn it. I've had it ever since I was 30. <laughs> what a nightmare. Seems like I always dream like that before an opening broadcast. 
Well, I better start getting dressed. Rochester, I told you to shorten my nightgown. <laughs> Why didn't you? I was going to, boss, but I hated to cut those rosebuds off the bottom. <laughs> One sound I might tell you. Jack Benny was supposed to be visiting Epsom Downs in England, the horse races. And uh, the scriptwriters always tried to throw me with something. They tried to put something in that I couldn't do. And this time they put in Mel Blank does an English horse whinny. So I didn't say anything, and I waited till it came to that spot, and I did an English horse whinny that sounded like this. Well, I guess the Benny was... Uh, that was probably your most exposure in all the radio, wasn't it? Uh, uh, yes, it was, uh, yes. Well, the beauty of radio is the fact that you could do more than one voice. On television, where they see you, you have to more or less do just one character. When I do voices individually, like Porky and Daffy and these others, they are done separately, and then they are pieced together on the tape so that uh -huh. they sound like they are in continuity Rather than form. making you change your voice yes, from one that's uh, right. to the next. But you must have done that from time oh, to yes, time, Yes, yes. Is I, it tough? Pretty tough, Doc. And uh, sometimes it's not so hard. <laughs> but I uh, keep on talking. <laughs> <laughs> How many voices do you have? Well, about... Ten or eleven years ago, I sat down and tried to figure out how many voices I could do. By the time I got to 400, I was sound asleep. No 12 o'clock at midnight. Yeah. 400. That was 11 years ago, and I've done many since then. So uh, You're creating new voices all the time. Yeah, huh? that's right. As a commercial would demand, or as a character yes. in a film would command, or a radio or a TV thing, I suppose. That's right, or a new animation. Mel Blanc was born on May 30th, 1908 in San Francisco. He grew up in Portland, Oregon, and began mastering dialects and impersonations as a child. By the time he finished high school, Blanc was doing skits on local radio with his brother Henry. In the early 1930s, he moved to California. He worked at NBC's San Francisco affiliate, KGO, before moving to Los Angeles, getting on both the Al Pierce Show and the Baker's Broadcast. He soon found himself doing voices for cartoons and becoming a regular on Jack Benny's program. Anyway, getting back to the Warner Brother cartoons, Schlesinger sold out to Warner Brothers. Jack Benny had heard these Warner Brother cartoons and he called me in one day and he said, Mel, he says, I've got a bear at my vault that guards my vault. He says, can you growl like a bear? So I said, sure. He said, how would it sound? I said, like this. He said, good, you're on next week. Well, I did this for six months. That's all I did was the growl of a bear for six full months. And finally, I said to Mr. Benny, you know, Mr. Benny, I can also talk. Well, he laughed. He said, I'll have the scriptwriters write something in for you. So they did, and that's what I've been doing ever since, these various voices. I think the most famous thing you did, at least to my recollection on the Benny Show, was the old Maxwell, and this used to bring the people into jolts of laughter. you recall how that went, that routine? Well, I'll tell you how that happened. You know, they uh, usually had a record that played the sound effect of the motor dying and stopping, but uh, at this rehearsal, I saw that the plug wasn't put into the socket for the electric uh, phonograph to play. So before I had a chance to tell the sound effects men, it came to that spot. And I did it orally, and it sounded like this. 
also his parrot, you know. He, he got a hold of a parrot that couldn't talk. Or if it could talk, it couldn't come in on cue, so I had to do the voice for that. And uh, one of the lines was... Maybe the cheapskate, maybe the cheapskate. Benny's success led to Blank, Phil Harris, and Dennis Day all getting their own shows in the fall of 1946. The Mel Blank Show debuted over CBS on Tuesday, September 3rd at 8.30 p.m. Blank played himself in his natural voice. The program featured Mary Jane Croft, Joseph Kearns, Hans Conried, Alan Reed, and other Hollywood radio regulars. From Hollywood, Colgate Tooth Powder for a breath that's sweet and teeth that sparkle presents The Mel Blanc Show. My lawnmower needs sharpening. I've got to take it to Mel Blanc's Fix-It Shop. My wife's percolator top is cracked. I've got to take it to Mel Blanc's Fix-It Shop. Oh, my stocking has a run in it. I've got to take it to Mel Blanc's Fix-It Shop. My wife's going to have a baby. i got to take her to, uh, to the hospital. Colgate Tooth Powder for a breath that's sweet and teeth that sparkle brings you Mel Blanc in his own fix-it shop with Mary Jane Croft, Earl Ross, Joe Kearns, Victor Miller and his orchestra, and Mel himself playing those delightful characters Zookie and Dr. Crab. The star of our show, Mel Blanc! It's a lovely autumn morning in Mel Blanc's town... Population, 7,500. <laughs> Pardon me. Population, 7,501. <laughs> the postman, Mr. Snoop, is making his morning rounds. The baker, Mr. Brown, is putting his rolls in the window. And in Mel Blank's fix-it shop, Mel is just about finished fixing Druggist Simpson's penny-weighing machine. Is the weighing machine all fixed, nephew? Uh, yeah, Uncle Rupert. I believe I'll try it. Hmm, must be something wrong. Why? What does it say you weigh? 17 pounds. Uh, do I look that thin? Why don't you read the fortune anyway? Oh, yeah. If you are a woman, you'll marry a man. If you are a man, you'll marry a woman. If you are married, try another penny. Oh, I forgot to push this lever up. Now I'll try it again. Oh, that's better. 120 pounds. What's the fortune this time? You are kind, understanding, friendly, considerate, gentle, and you make enemies too easily. <laughs> oh, here comes that gossipy pipsqueak of a postman, Mr. Snoop. I'll go out for a walk, Melvin, if you don't mind. Okay, Uncle Rupert. Hello, Roop. Goodbye, Snoop. <laughs> Howdy, Mel. Hello, Mr. Snoop. Uh, got a letter for me? Nope. Do you expect me to write you one? <laughs> oh, uh, I didn't mean a letter from you. Oh, well, just a second here. Oh, first of all, I want you to mend my mailbag. It's all bursted out to the seams. Oh, sure, I can do that in a minute. Uh, any mail for me? Uh, now, let me see here. Hodgkins, 805 North Elm Drives, Blodgett, 807... Mm, that's the third notice Blodgett's got from the library. Why don't you return that book? You know, I got a good mind to go up to Blodgett. Any mail for me? Oh, oh. Let me see here. Simpkins, 809. Ooh, very interesting postcard. Dear Joe, if you've got any more... Excuse that me for saying so, Mr. Snoop. <laughs> 
but I thought postal employees weren't allowed to read the mail. Oh, well, that's right, Mel. Well, you ain't no employee. You read it for me. <laughs> Look, Mr. Snoop, any mail for me? Now, stop poking around my letters. If anything I hate, it's nosy people. <laughs> Let me see. Potter, 811. Oh, I say mail. Mail? No, mail. Uh, <laughs> how about buying two tickets to the postman's ball Saturday night, huh? Only a dollar apiece. Well, I'd like to, Mr. Snoop, but I gave my last five bucks to my uncle. I don't have a cent. Mm. Well, here's your mailbag, all stitched. Well, what's the charge? Oh, nothing. Gosh, I sure could use two bucks for the tickets. I'd take Betty, and for once, we wouldn't have to spend the evening in her parlor. What's the charge? Nothing. I'd dance with Betty, then I'd go out in the veranda and hold her in my arms, and then I'd kiss her and hug her. And... Uh, what's the charge? Two dollars, and I'll take the tickets. <laughs> Hello, Betty. Gee, you sure look beautiful. Yeah. All dressed up and no place to go. What do you mean, all dressed up and no place to go? Why, I'll take you to the... Uh, well, uh, how about... Uh, well? I'll take you home and you can change your clothes. Oh, that's it. We never go anywhere. We spend every evening in my parlor. No wonder Father feels the way he does about it. Well, I hate sitting in the parlor just as much as your father does. You do? Yeah, that love seat isn't big enough for the three of us. <laughs> well, anyway, Betty, I've got good news. We won't be spending this Saturday night in the parlor. I've got two tickets to the postman's ball. Oh, Mel, this is awful. Because this is one Saturday night I won't be able to be with you. But, Betty, why not? Well, Daddy's expecting... Oh, wait a minute. Here comes Daddy himself. I'll, I'll let him tell you. Hello, Mr. Colby. Uh... <clears throat> What did you say, Mr. Colby? <coughs> yes, it is a lovely day, isn't it? Uh, Mr. Colby, may I take your daughter to the postman's ball Saturday night? <coughs> no, huh? But why not, Mr. Colby? <coughs> well, that isn't much of a reason. What? I mean... Oh, now listen here, you dimwit. I'm expecting a very important man for dinner this Saturday night. Betty's got to prepare dinner for him and then entertain him. Well, you're making a regular nightclub out of your place, aren't you? Mel. This Mr. Fisher can help me a great deal with my supermarket. He's president of the Acme Portuguese Sardine Company. And do you know anything more impossible than getting Portuguese sardines? Yeah, getting the sardines out of the can. Oh. People come to my supermarket all day and say, Do you have Portuguese sardines? Do you have Portuguese sardines? And all day I say, No, no, no. Well, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. You hear? Mr. Colby, let go of my neck. Oh. I'm not a sardine. Oh. <laughs> well, if this Mr. Fisher is so important, you should really be alone with him to close the deal. So why don't I take Betty out to the dance? Betty stays home Saturday night. Well, what about me? Well, you can go to... Go to the dance. <laughs> well, thanks for changing your mind, Mr. Colby. I haven't changed my mind. Now, listen, Mel. If you show up at my house or within five blocks of my house Saturday night, I'll... Well, I'll... Don't say any more. I've got an imagination. All right, then, use it. Come on, Betty. Well, I'll, I'll be with you in just a minute. Well, goodbye, Mr. Colby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a nice day, isn't it? 
Oh, gosh, Betty, this is awful. I sure killed our Saturday night date. This was going to be once we wouldn't spend it in your parlor. Oh, Mel, you know Father. Father talks big. Betty, Father is big. <laughs> now, Mel, you listen to me. I'm inviting you to the house Saturday night, and if you don't show up, you don't have to show up ever again. Goodbye. Bye. Gosh, Betty's father says no. Betty says yes. Oh, I'm just the pickle in the middle. I want to ask about a, a series of your own on radio. You had a program called Mel Blanc's Fix-It Shop. That's right. And when was that on? 1946 and 47. Mm-hmm. And this was it came out of Hollywood? Yeah, CBS. It was for uh, Colgate, Palmolive, Pete. How long did that run? A year? Two years? Two years. Two years. Mm-hmm. That was right in the heart of radio's biggest era. I think. That's right. The middle 40s is when mm-hmm. radio was at its finest. Mm-hmm. And you had a lot of guests on the program? Oh, yeah. Hans Conried and Jim Backus. Uh-huh. My goodness. Mel Blank, Hans Conried, and Jim Backus. Did anybody ever... You didn't need anybody else, did you? <laughs> oh, I had some great gals, too. Uh, all of the top gals in the business. Mel Blank, I can't tell you how Lee much. Lee Benaderet was one. Oh, yeah. Well, she's on. She, she, she died. Said, she yes. was on the... Uh, wasn't she working on the Flintstones for a while? Lee yes, Benaderet? yes, yeah. that's and right. And she was with Burns and Allen on, on yes, television. Uh-huh. I think. And uh, what was the uh, hillbilly thing? Was it the Beverly Hillbillies or was she it... She was uh, with the Beverly Hillbillies to start with, and then yeah. she went on her own show. Yeah, Petticoat. Petticoat Junction. Right. Well, here it is Saturday night. Mel still doesn't know whether he's going to use those tickets to the postman's ball. Betty says Mel had better come up to the house or else. And Betty's father, who is trying to get a shipment of Portuguese sardines, says Mel had better not show up or else. Anyway, right now Mel is in his fix-it shop talking to Betty's little brother Axelrod, who has just entered the shop. Well, what's new, Axelrod? Gosh, Mel, is my father mad at you? Well, how do you know? Did your father say anything about me, uh, personally? Well, I didn't hear anything. You didn't? No. Of course, whenever he starts to talk about you, he makes me leave the room. Mm. Well, how about Betty? Same way. While she was preparing dinner, she kept talking to the chicken and calling it Mel. Well, that shows how much she loves me. She said to the chicken, if you don't come up tonight, I'll... Well, then what'd she say? Nothing. She just dropped it in the boiling water. Oh. Well, so long, Mel. Oh, so long, Axelrod. Gosh, what a mess this is. If I don't go to Betty's house, I'm a boiled chicken. If I do, I'm a dead duck. (laughs) Uncle Rupert, I can't figure out why Mr. Colby doesn't like me. Well, you read the fortune on your card. You are kind, gentle, observant, tolerant, and you make enemies too easily. You mean I should try to make a friend of Mr. Colby? My boy, when I first met your aunt, I said to myself, I must make a friend of that woman. What happened? That was the worst decision I ever made. (laughs) Maybe I ought to try it anyway. Why don't I go up there to Mr. Colby and be Uh as nice... Here comes that pompous Mr. Cushing, the president of your lodge. Well, hello, Brother Mel. Ugga, ugga, boo, ugga, boo, boo, ugga. (laughs) Greetings, mighty potentate. Ugga, ugga, boo, ugga, boo, boo, ugga. (laughs) Well... Just stopped in for a second to remind you about the next meeting of the Benevolent Order of Loyal Zebras. I'll do my best to make it, mighty potentate. It's an honor for you to ask me personally. Oh, not at all. I like to get around among my zebras. (laughs) (laughs) Say, why are you moping around like this? Why, when I was a young man, do you know what Saturday night meant to me? 
I already took a bath, Mr. Cushing. You, you wouldn't understand. Well, I can see you don't want to talk, so I'll say so long. Agagaboo, agaboo-boo, aga. Aga, agaboo, agaboo-boo, aga. Well, now, wait a minute. Anyone who gives the password like that is a worried zebra. <laughs> now, tell me, what's wrong? Well, I wanted to take Betty to the postman's ball, and Mr. Colby wouldn't let me because he's entertaining the president of the Acme Portuguese Sardine Company. And he wants oh, Betty you, to... You don't mean Mr. Fisher, do you? Yeah. Do you know him? Why, of course, and you should, too. Fisher's the Grand Wizard of the Jennings Junction Order of Loyal Zebras. We are both Imperial Caliphs on the Executive Council. You mean I'm his fellow zebra? Hmm. I'm his lodge brother? That's right. Go on up there and tell him so, and uh, mention my name. Oh, but Mr. Colby said... Oh, Colby won't touch you with Fisher there. Fisher's a swell guy. A man I'm proud to call a zebra. Well, so long, Mel. Just give Fisher the old password. Aga, aga, boo, aga, boo, boo, aga. Aga, aga, boo, aga, boo, boo. Aga. The rating that October was 6.9. The overall season rating was just 7.2. Colgate and CBS canceled the show after June 24, 1947. But Blank will remain a fixture on Benny's program into the TV era. Greatest work I've ever done was with Jack Benny. He was the most wonderful man, and he appreciated everything that, that I did for him, and he didn't hold back. He let me know about it. I've worked with practically all of the people in show business, and of them all, I love Jack the most. He was very kind, considerate, and a, a real wonderful friend. can't get over it. So Phil has his own program. Do you mind? Of course not. I like to see people get ahead. I want everyone to be a success. In fact, I'd even like to see Dennis Day get his own show. He has. What? <laughs> Mary, did I hear you correctly? If that thing in your ear is connected, you did. <laughs> Mary, this is... Mary, this is no time to be funny. You're kidding about Dennis, aren't you? No, he starts his own program Thursday night for Colgate. You're not mad, are you? Well, of course I'm not mad. To be in fine shape if I let little things like that bother me. What do you think keeps me looking so young and strong? Eastern Columbia, Broadway at night. <laughs> I mean, besides that. Anyway, with me, it's just a matter of principle, that's all. If Phil and Dennis feel that they can go on their own shows and get laughs, it's... Say, it's, it's all right with me. I don't care. Say, perhaps the little chicks feel that the that the nest that I built is too small, and that they, that they no longer need the sheltering wing of the mother hen. If you lay an egg, I'm gonna punch you right in the nose. Everything was gone over the airwaves, you know, it was sound, and everyone could imagine what a person looked like, mm -hmm. what a situation looked like, in their own minds, by sound effects and by the person's voice.
Jack Benny's famous Irish tenor Dennis Day was born on May 21, 1916 in New York City to Patrick and Mary McNulty. He graduated from Cathedral Prep and attended Manhattan College in the Bronx, where he sang in the Glee Club. Eventually, he made his way to radio, making his debut on the Jack Benny program on October 8, 1939. There was a story which I picked up and helped push along that you impressed Mary with that yes please routine. Is that true? Well, that's true. I impressed Jack, actually. At the first audition I did, I uh, had sung for about 15 minutes in NBC Studios in New York City, Rockefeller Center, and I had sung for about 15 minutes, and they were up in the uh, control booth, and I heard over the loudspeaker, Dennis, you can take a rest. And then about two or three minutes later, I heard, oh, Dennis, and I said, yes, please. <laughs> Jack told me later, much later, after I was with him on the show, he said, you know, that was one of the things that impressed me so much, that this is the type of a person that I wanted on the show, and this is the, the one who I would want. So I guess being polite or whatever it would be paid off in its way because Jack took a chance with me and I stayed with him, as I say. Phil Harris, then Benny's band leader, remembered how Day got the job. You had to have something that he could magnify. In other words, when after Kenny Baker left, we couldn't find a singer. Benny, he always wanted a tenor. That's what Benny wanted to fit in there. So we finally saw this picture. We went into the Bronx, and McNulty is his real name. And I went over, and uh, we had dinner over at his house. And his old man, we call him Tiptoes McNulty. <laughs> he was rushing the can, you know, Schaefer's beer. And at the first rehearsal, Jack looked over and he said, Dennis, and Dennis said, yes, please. Well, that was it. That was he. See, he had to find something that he could magnify. Day was a man of many talents, with both a supreme singing voice and impeccable comedic timing. Even though I was born and raised in New York City, mm -hmm. I think the, uh, I'd never been west of the Hudson. Been to uh, Ireland with my aunt, uh -huh. uh, who took me over when I got out of high school. But I'd never been out west, so I was pretty green mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, behind the ears. Uh, I didn't know very much, and I think I was more or less a part of the character that I portrayed on the Jack Benny show. During World War II, he enlisted in the Navy. By the time he was back on the air in March of 46, NBC was ready to give him a chance at carrying his own show. A Day in the Life of Dennis Day premiered on Thursday, October 3, 1946 at 7.30 p.m. Dennis Day. Oh, be worthwhile. in your eyes, of your smile. Dennis Day is brought to you by Palm Olive Soap and Colgate Dental Cream. Palm Olive Soap, your beauty hope, and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth.
The Dennis Day Show with Barbara Eiler, B. Benadaret, Dink Trout, George Dooning in the orchestra, and yours truly, Vern Smith, is written by Frank Galen and stars our popular young singer in A Day in the Life of Dennis Day. Here's Dennis to sing It's a Most Unusual Day. When you went into that audition, how many other singers were there? How tough an audition was it? Well, there were probably over 500 singers that they were auditioning or listening to recordings of their voice. That's what Jack and Mary and the agents told me later. They had auditioned over 500 singers. There were lots of other singers that were in contention with me, several from Canada, quite a number from our own country, you know, who were in contention for the job because it was a very important job. He had Kenny Baker, who was a very big star at that time. And he had been made so by the Jack Benny program. Do you know why he left? He was the one who left. And everybody said, now, all the critics and everything said, who can follow Kenny Baker? Because he was a tremendous star at that time. Jack's first singer, at least before Kenny Baker, would be Frank Parker. Mm -hmm. And he had quite a number of other singers besides that. He had James Melton in the beginning. He had somebody else. He had a number of singers, even after Kenny Baker left, he had auditioned quite a number of singers and tried somebody on the program. They didn't work out, and then I got the opportunity, and thank God, it worked. Situated in the town of Weaverville, his character was naive and often flat broke. In 1948, the program's rating peaked at 16.1. That October 16th, the show broadcast an episode centered around worthless oil property. And now, here is a very important announcement. Palmolive Soap is giving away prizes worth $67,000, a grand prize of $25,000 in one lump sum, or $100 a month for life. And that's not all. There are over 2,000 prizes in Palmolive's big treasure chest contest. Ford sedan, Westinghouse laundromat, from Silver Fox scarves, Toastmaster toasters. And it's easy to enter. Complete the last line of this jingle. A fresher, brighter-looking skin is something I would like to win. I'll get palm olive soap today. Da-da, 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 da-da. Write your last line on a plain sheet of paper or use an official entry blank giving complete rules obtainable at your dealers. Include your own and dealer's name and address and mail with the big word palm olive from the front of the wrapper of one regular and one bath size cake of palm olive soap to Box 92, New York 8, New York. Now, here's the jingle once more. A fresher, brighter-looking skin is something I would like to win. I'll get palm olive soap today. Da-da, 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 da-da. Mail your entry to Palm Olive, Box 92, New York 8, New York. Get palm olive soap for a lovelier complexion. Remember, doctors prove palm olive's beauty results. Well, we've seldom seen a more glorious fall morning than this one in the little town of Weaverville. Brilliant sunshine turns each autumn leaf to gold, and there's a tang in the air like wine. No wonder there's a sparkle in every eye, a carefree smile on every face. No wonder pure joy of living... Oh, well, wait a minute. What's this? Well, there's our young hero, Dennis Day, walking into the Anderson house with the most woe-begone expression we've ever seen. My goodness, he hasn't looked like this since the junior G-men charged him for being overage. 
I wonder what's happened. Why, Dennis, it's only 10 o'clock. What are you doing home from the shoe store? I've got a good notion not to go back to that shoe store ever, Mildred. The boss and I had words this morning. Words? What do you mean, words? I said good morning, and he said you're fired. (laughs) Dennis, no. Well, what on earth did you do? Oh, I guess it was that order I bought from a salesman without consulting the boss. Gosh, I still think 300 pairs of ladies' mules with fur on them at 50 cents a pair is a good buy. Oh, gee, it seems so to me, too. Sure. How did I know they were all size 13 and a half? (laughs) Dear, isn't it just awful the bad... Oh, hi, Daddy. Good morning, children. (laughs) Something wrong, Mildred? You look a little upset. Oh, Dennis is out of work again, Daddy. Yeah, it's getting pretty darn discouraging going from one job to another, Mr. Anderson. Oh, now, all you need is a little responsibility, my boy. Until a young man gets married, he's like a deflated balloon, incapable of rising. Ah, someday you'll find your gas bag just as I have. (laughs) Daddy's right, Dennis. I've heard him say many times that he was incomplete until he met Mother. Sure. She was what finished me off all right. (laughs) Oh, Daddy. Oh, well, just a little belly laugh to cheer up Dennis. Now, uh, why not drop in at that employment agency downtown, my boy? I'm sure they'll locate something for you. Gee, do you really think so? Why, of course. And then you're, when you're finished, drop over at the hotel. I'll be down there on business today, and we can have lunch together. Okay, I'll see you around noon. But try not to be too disappointed if the employment agency doesn't find something for you immediately, won't you, Dennis? Sure, I will. Remember, you can always collect your unemployment insurance. After all, $20 a week isn't to be sneezed at. No, especially when it's $3 more than I've been making. (laughs) So I thought if you could find me something steady, I... Why, of course, young man. We'll do our very best for you. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, Just sit right down on that couch while I read off a list of occupations, and when you hear one that appeals to you, let me know. Ready? Accountant? Actuary? Architect? Who? Architect? No, Lou Spring. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it does do that once in a while. I think it's only a flesh wound. (laughs) Good, good. Uh, Perhaps we'd better get your vital statistics for our records before we go any further. Now, your name again? Dennis Day. Oh, yes. Your age and weight, please. 22 and 159. The larger number is my weight. (laughs) Yes, I had a hunch it might be. As far as school is concerned, how far did you go, Mr. Day? Three blocks. (laughs) Mr. Day, I'm beginning to adore you. And now this next question usually gets a plain, dull yes or no for an answer. (laughs) But somehow I'm counting on you heavily. Uh, Tell me, are you a white-collar worker? Well, usually, but of course you know how the laundries are these days. (laughs) I knew you wouldn't let me down. (laughs) And now then, uh, what was your last job? Oh, I sold shoes. What kind? Right ones and left ones. <laughs> Interesting. 
Uh, people with three feet were just out of luck, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Shall we continue? This is fun. <laughs> Are you by any chance adept with your hands, Mr. Day? Well, I can put them in front of a light and make a rabbit shadow on the wall. <laughs> well, bully for you. But, uh, what I meant was, are you skilled at any manual labor? Gee, no, I'm afraid not. Then we have to rely on your mental attributes in placing you, huh? Yes, sir. We're in trouble, Mr. Day. Gosh, really? Really. However, suppose you leave your number, and if something turns up, I'll give you a call. Oh, swell. I'll be at the Weaverville Hotel for the next hour. After that, call 227. Fine. If a man answers, I won't hang up. By some wild stretch of the imagination, it might be you. <laughs> Sam, I'm telling you, this hotel lobby has given me the willies. What's the matter with people in these tank towns? Ain't they buying phony oil properties anymore? Oh, Duke, it ain't like the old days. The oil racket's been done to death. Nowadays, you need a real standout dope. Yeah, but you'd think a town this size would have at least one prime... Hey, Sam. Huh? See the... <laughs> you see the kid over there waiting for someone, the one with them big, innocent, brown eyes? You mean the guy over there twiddling his thumbs? Yeah. See how hard he has to concentrate to keep him from colliding? Uh-huh. Hey, look. That beautiful brunette with the wire-haired terrier is walking right in front of him. Oh, brother, has she got gorgeous legs, huh? Look at the kid's head time. Yeah, but he's looking at the wire-haired terrier. <laughs> oh, that's our man. Go to work. Uh, pardon me, young man, but I just don't seem able to place your face. Oh, really? It's just where everybody else's is. <laughs> no, no, no. What? I am... Tra I'm I afraid I've got some bad news, J.B. Yeah? Oil has just been discovered on our land in Texas. Oh, no! Oh, unless we can unload that land somehow, we'll be stuck with another million dollars. This is stuck. <laughs> Look, young man, you don't understand. This puts us in a higher income tax bracket. Sure, and right now we owe the government so much money that they don't know whether to throw us into jail or recognize us as a foreign power. <laughs> oh, if we could only find someone to take this land off our hands, save for a... Measly two bucks an acre. Well, if you're really in trouble, fellas, I'd... A good boy, now. How much land do you want? Well, wait till I figure out how much cash I can lay my hands on. Let's see now. Could I get much oil out of about two and a half yards? <laughs> we should have known, Sam. Yeah, come on, Duke. Ah, forget it, kid. We're looking for a big... Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Gosh, this would be a wonderful thing for Mrs. Anderson. She might buy the whole hundred acres. Mrs. Anderson? Yeah, I'm going to marry her daughter. And if I let her in on this, she'll have something to thank me for. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what we'll do, my boy. We'll give you this deed to the property. And if this Mrs. Anderson buys it, just turn the 200 bucks over to us and we'll pay you a 10% commission. Ten dollars. Oh, boy. Thanks, gentlemen. <laughs> Gosh, Mrs. Anderson always wondered whether I had any brains or not. Well, I'll stop that in a hurry.
We'll continue our day in the life of Dennis Day in just a moment. Meanwhile, here's Dennis to sing with a twist of the wrist. Now, that's how primitive it was. Hmm. And then all they were doing was just trying out, you know, for color of people and how they looked and uh, camera techniques and all of that. So, of course, we didn't have color then either. It was only black and white. But it shows how primitive it was. Here I was lip singing. There was nothing live. So this was back in 1946, early 47. Mm -hmm. And then I think it started really to catch on at about 1949. Benny did his first in 1950. So he'd do maybe once a month. And even when Jack went into television, he wasn't sure of what he was going to do in television. First couple of shows, he was floundering, really, not sure of what direction he was going to take. And then he went back to the old, really, what he did in vaudeville, doing a monologue in the beginning and then bringing in uh, the other characters and everything else and doing sketches, more or less. Well, Dennis has been promised a commission if he can sell Mrs. Anderson 100 acres of Texas oil land at $2 an acre, not knowing, of course, that he'd been taken in by two phony confidence men. And because the sale is so important to him, he's been remembering the main points of the salesmanship course he took in high school. Never force the issue. Wait until the thing you're selling comes up naturally and normally in the conversation. Let's watch him put this technique into operation. Nice day, isn't it, Mrs. Anderson? Yes. A little warm for October. Maybe. Think prices will continue rising? If they do, taxes better start coming down. Mrs. Anderson, I'm glad you brought that up. Brought what up? Taxes. Greatest state in the union. <laughs> what? Boy, what oil lands. Why, if you could buy just one little bit of property... Oh, keep quiet. Too abrupt, huh? Okay, let's try it again. Nice day, isn't it? Dennis, I'm warning you. I'm in a black mood. I have a cold. I'm glad you brought that up. Brought what up? Black gold. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, Mrs. Anderson, I know where you can buy some Texas oil property for only $2 an acre. Oil property? Dennis Day, do you take me for an idiot? What's that got to do with it? <laughs> do you really think I'm dumb enough to fall for a thing like oil property? But this will make you a millionaire, Mrs. Anderson. For an investment of only two bucks an acre, you oh, can... Oh, stop. I wouldn't touch a thing like that with a ten-foot pole. It's the most ridiculous thing that... Oh, I'll get it. Hello? Hello, Mr. Day. Uh, this is Mr. Nelson at the employment agency. Who is it, Dennis? Oh, it's for me, Mrs. Anderson. I never thought I'd be saying this to you, Mr. Day, but I have a job for you. Oh, gosh, that's wonderful. What's wonderful? Oh, it's just business, Mr. An Mrs. Anderson. Uh, go ahead, Mr. Nelson. Well, have you ever heard of C.J. Farrington? C.J. Farrington? Why, that's the richest man. ...property out in the hills, and he wants someone to clear it off for him. Uh-huh. Chop down trees and cut away the brush. He'll pay $10 for every acre that's cleared. $10 an acre? Good heavens, it's up $8 an acre already. Uh, you know how to handle that type of work, don't you, Mr. Day? Oh, sure. I can clean up all right. Oh, Clara Anderson, you fool. Tell him I'll be there first thing in the morning, Mr. Nelson. Maybe it's not too late. And thanks. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Dennis. Yes, ma'am? I've said some rather peculiar things to you every now and then, haven't I, dear? Yes, ma'am. 
But you've always known that way down deep inside me, I adore you. Haven't you? No, ma'am. <laughs> I do, Dennis. You're the sweetest boy I've ever met. Mrs. Anderson, are you asking me to become the father of the girl I love? The Dennis Day Show would run on NBC until June 30th, 1951. He'd remain on Jack Benny's radio program through the end of its run, and further still on Benny's TV show and specials into the 1970s. I don't see why she'd have any more, do you? I'd rather not answer that. I might get investigated. No, you don't understand, Dennis. You see, I want you to sell me that oil property at the original cost of $2 an acre. You do? Well, gosh. Okay, sure. Oh, you darling, I'll write you out a check for $200 immediately But I don't understand, Mrs. Anderson A minute ago, you said you wouldn't touch it with a ten-foot pole Oh, well You know that girls are always permitted to change their minds, don't you? Sure, but what's that got to do? Ooh, I nearly said I like comedies because I am a great believer in the therapeutic value of laughter. There's so much sadness in this world today, so much horror, so much of the mean and the cruel, that I think we need, as a nation, we need good, healthy, honest laughter. And when I hear an audience laugh, I get a great physical sigh of relief in my whole soul because it's something that I think is so important and I love to hear it and when I can get an honest laugh I think that I'm doing my job at least in my small way comedy is the jam and the, the little bit of sauce that is put on the viands of life that gives it a little bit of aftertaste and a lovely memory Granby's Green Acres grew out of characters played by Gail Gordon and Bea Benaderet on Lucille Ball's My Favorite Husband. I did a radio show with her called My Favorite Husband. Now, uh, you played her husband's boss then, right? Yes. And that was also a bank president. Right. They got you close to the money, don't they? Well, Didn't they? <laughs> yes, well, the idea in those days was mm -hmm. that anyone who was a boss of a bank had to be a blowhard. The names were changed, but the basic characters remained the same. To be quite honest, uh, the parts I did were because I was louder than anybody else in radio. I could scream louder than most people, and it doesn't take a lot of talent to be noisy and loud, <laughs> but I had a good lung capacity, and I could be very loud, and that's what they would, the producers would cast me for. We want someone loud and uh, blow hard, and they said, well, get Gail Gordon, he's louder than anybody else, and so that <laughs> gave me a great deal of work, which isn't artistic, but at least it's truthful, and it kept the wolf from the door. In radio, I played leading men, heavies, character people, juveniles, old men, foreigners, everything else. I, no, I, I had no, uh, I didn't miss it at all. When I got cast as a blow hard, I got 
more money for doing it than I did for the usual other characters. And so I was very happy to keep doing it and being cast as a blowhard <laughs> during it all. The show's creator, Jay Somers, based it on boyhood memories on a farm near Greendale, New York. It began airing on July 3, 1950 as a summer replacement for the Lux Radio Theater. Featured with Gordon and Benaderet was Louise Erickson, Carly Bear, and other Hollywood radio regulars like Howard McNear and Herb Vigren. Bob Lamont announced, and Opie Cates handled the music. Granby's Green Acres, starring Gail Gordon as John Granby. Oh, John Granby had a farm. With B. Benaderet as Martha Granby. And on that farm he had a wife. Louise Erickson is Janice. With a daughter here. Harley Bear is Ebb. And a hired hand there. Oh, John Granby had a farm. Now, Mr. Granby plants a crop. You know, the funny thing about people. Farm people work hard so they can save enough money to move to the city. City people work hard so they can make enough to move to a farm. And between the two, who do you think makes out best? The moving company. <laughs> now, you take my boss, John Granby. He was a city fella. Bought this farm here in Doveville. Don't know the first thing about farming. Gets excited at the least little thing. Martha! Martha, where are you? Oh, I, I'm out in the kitchen, John. Well, come here, quick, quick. John, what's the matter? Did you hurt Martha, you? look. What is it? A potato. <laughs> Well, th th that's nice, dear. Nice? Martha, do you realize that this is the first potato? Oh, John, I'm sure that there must have been potatoes before this. <laughs> I, I mean, it's the first one from our farm. You know, Martha, I feel the same way about this potato as I did when Janice was born. <laughs> oh, that's silly. Janice had more hair. <laughs> Martha, Martha, you just don't understand what this potato means to me. It's the first step to security. That's why I bought this farm, to have security. Well, you had security when you were working in the bank. John, maybe you made a mistake in giving up your job. Oh, but I had to. I couldn't have gone on working as a bank cashier for one more day. I had to get out while the getting was good. John, they weren't going to examine the books, were they? <laughs> it was nothing like that. You know I've always wanted to buy a farm, and when I make up my mind to do something, I don't change it. But, John, maybe you're not cut out to be a farmer. Doing things like plowing or, or, or breeding hogs. Or... And why couldn't I breed hogs? Remember that time you bought Janice those two rabbits for Easter and you were going to breed them? Well, what about it? That wasn't very successful, was it? Well, it wasn't my fault. They turned out to be brothers. <laughs> No, Martha, I, I must say, say that, that we... Is anything wrong? I heard you rush into the house yelling for Mother. Oh, there's nothing wrong, Janice. I was out in the field, and I found a potato. Oh? Well, what were you looking for? 
I was looking for anything. I just happened to find it. Then I guess you can keep it for your honesty. <laughs> Janice, your father's very proud of that potato. It's the first thing that's grown on the farm. I don't know why he's so proud. He didn't plant the potatoes. There were ten acres of them here when we bought the farm from Mr. Parker. The only thing Dad can take credit for is the other 130 acres with nothing growing on them. Janice, I'm going to grow things on them. What? Potatoes. We're going to have 140 acres of potatoes. Goodness, all that starch. <laughs> Dad, do you think potatoes are a good crop to raise? Why, certainly. Parker told me that when I bought the farm from him, and he's a pretty smart man. Besides, I didn't rely on his word alone. I wrote to Washington and asked them to mail me some pamphlets on the subject. Oh, John, you shouldn't have done that. Why not? Well, these days, President Truman has so many other things to do. <laughs> yes, yes. Look, I've made up my mind to plant potatoes, and I'm going to plant them. And when I make up my mind to do something, I don't change it. Well, John, do you really think potatoes are a good money crop? Martha, there's one thing you've got to learn. You can't just think of farming in terms of dollars and cents. The love of the soil is important, too. Now, you take Mr. Calvin down the road. He's been a farmer for 50 years. He's gotten up every morning of his life at 4 o'clock, worked his land in good weather and bad. And why? For the money he could get out of it? No. He loves the soil. Oh, uh, by the way, Dad, uh, Mr. Calvin was here to see you this afternoon, but you were down in the barn. Oh, what did he want? He wanted to show you his new Cadillac. Uh, Cadillac? Imagine buying an expensive car like that. Well, is there really that much money in potatoes? Well, of course. Why, Dad, a... Mr. Calvin is a wheat farmer. Oh, <laughs> well, so he's a wheat farmer. John, does anybody else around here grow potatoes? Well, They uh... all grow wheat and corn. <laughs> then why are you going to plant potatoes? Well, because I... Well, Martha, I told you, when I make up my mind, I don't change it. But, John, these other men have been farming around here for years. If they grow wheat and corn, there must be a reason. There is. They've never done any research on the market prices the way I have. They're too busy. Yes, driving to the bank in their Cadillacs to deposit money. <laughs> well, they'd have even more money to deposit if they knew what I know. Potatoes are stable. Wheat and corn are speculative. I'll show it to you in black and white. It'll be in the morning paper here. Oh. Yeah, yeah, here we are. Commodity prices. Trading on the Chicago grain market was very active today. Wheat and corn showed a strong upward trend. What? What else does it say? Cadillac stock went up four points. <laughs> John, you better hurry up and finish your breakfast. Yes, it's almost daylight. Oh, I've got some day ahead of me. I've got to do the milking, plow up all the potatoes and plant the wheat. Yes, you have it. Plow up what potatoes and plant what wheat? Well, after sleeping on it and thinking it over, I've decided that wheat is the only crop to plant. Oh, but dear, last night you were so convinced about planting potatoes. Why, you even said that Mr. Parker told you that potatoes were the best crop, and you said Mr. Parker was a smart man. Oh, well, maybe I did, but what did Parker ever do that showed he was so smart? He sold you this farm. <laughs> oh, I... Oh, there's Abe. I'm going out and do the milking. Oh, good morning, Eb. Morning, Mr. Granby. Well, come on, Eb. We've got a big day ahead of us. Let's get over to the barn. Right with you. My foolish heart. 
Ep, Ep, open the barn door. Good morning, Bossy. As soon as we finish the milking, Ep, we'll get to work. You want some help with Bossy? Uh, no, no thanks. I've been milking this cow for three months, and I think I can manage. Whoa, 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 Bossy. Whoa, whoa. Uh, let's see. Uh, where do I start milking? The best place is somewhere between the tail and the head. <laughs> Very funny. Let's see. Oh, yes. Yes, here it is. Now. <laughs> she isn't contented. Mind if I make a suggestion? What? Use both hands. I am using both hands. Yeah, but not on one faucet. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. Looks like you're holding on to a baseball bat. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'll get started. <laughs> well! <laughs> now I'm hitting on all eight. Four. <laughs> Don't be so technical. Hey, but haven't you got anything else to do besides standing there and criticizing me? Well, I guess I could go and weed the potatoes. Uh, that won't be necessary anymore. Why? The weed's going to stop growing? Of course not. <laughs> you don't have to weed the potatoes because we're going to plow them under. Oh, the government paying you to do it? Nope. And you ain't learned much about farming. Look, Ab. What are you going to plant? A hundred and forty acres of wheat. Corn's better. I said wheat. My mind is made up. When I make up my mind... Okay, okay. I'll be right with you, Bossy. You're welcome. Ab, how long will it take us to plow up those potatoes? Three weeks. Three weeks? Why? We ain't got a tractor. Well, where can we get a tractor around here? All right, all right, Bossy. There. <laughs> See, you might pick up a tractor cheap at the Henderson place. They're auctioning off his farm today. Well, let's go over there right after I'm finished milking. We'll do that. Okay, Bossy, okay. Then after we get the track rib, you can start plowing while I go into town and pick up the wheat seed. <laughs> Bossy, will you stop nagging? I wish she'd learn how to do that by herself. Yeah, how do you do? How do you do? I wonder if you could help me. I'm looking for Kimball's feed store. Oh, this is it. Yeah, yeah, this is it. It's a little hard to find the first time because my sign blew down. That was in 1902. Yeah, well, I'm very interested. <laughs> that was the year we had the big blow around here in Doveville. Never forget that. Oh, I had the sign hang on the post the front porch of the store, and then along came this tremendous wind. Oh, I remember looking out the window and seeing Miriam Hawkins crossing the street and trying to hold on to her skirt. I never did see the sign go. <laughs> 
Well, that's all very interesting. I found the sign the next morning, though, and I nailed it back up. Oh, it looked kind of silly there, hanging there on the post with the rest of the building lying on the ground. <laughs> well, that's the Yes, very... here's quite a blow. Never see a pair of purple garters without thinking of Miriam Hartman. <laughs> If you don't mind, I'm in somewhat of a hurry. I want to buy some wheat seeds. <laughs> Certainly. Oh, oh, see, you're the city father. Bought the old Parker place, ain't you? Uh, that's right. My name's John Granby. Glad to know you. I'm Will Kimballs. You're John Granby. Uh, yeah. yeah. John Granby, John Granby, John Granby. Kind of like to repeat a name several times to get it kind of fixed in my mind. I've been in business for 40 years, and I've never forgotten a name. John Granby. John Granby. Ah, there it is now. Now I'll never forget that your name is... Uh, your name is, uh... Mr. Kimball. Oh, yes, Mr. Kimball, yes. <laughs> now, uh, what did you want? Some wheat seed, and my name is not Kimball. Oh, I know that. Kimball is my name. <laughs> it's on the sign from the store. Oh, no, 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 no. That blew down during the big wind of 1905. 19- <laughs> Told me that story. Look, Mr. Kimball, I'd like to buy wheat seed so I can get it planted this afternoon. How much you figure you'll need? Well, I'm going to plow up my potatoes and plant my entire farm with wheat, so I'll need enough for uh, 140 acres. Well, then you'll need about 40 tons. 40 tons. 40 tons? Can you break that down into 10-cent packages? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, No, 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 I'll tell you what. I'll take a couple of bushels of seed with me now, and you can deliver the rest. Well, that's okay. It's quite a project you're undertaking uh, now. Yes, yes, but I think I can handle it. I bought a tractor today at Tom Henderson's auction. Oh, say, that was too bad about Tom Henderson losing his farm. You know, it's a terrible thing when a man has to sell all his belongings to pay his creditors. Oh, it certainly is. By the way, how did Henderson go broke? Well, it seems to me I heard that he planted the wrong crop. Oh, is that so? What did he plant? Wheat. <laughs> Wheat? Yes, yes, sweet. Now, I'll go and get your seed. Uh, what kind? What did you say you wanted? Uh, corn. Ah, oh, it's going to be a good year for corn. Oh, you really think so? Oh, yes, I sold a lot of corn. Everybody around here is planting corn. Yeah, it's going to be an awful lot of corn. Oh, well, now, won't that bring the price down? Oh, probably. Well, I'll get your seed for you in a minute, mister. Uh, mister, well, I'll have the seed for you in just a minute. Oh, thanks, thanks. Everybody's planting corn. Well, that means the market will be flooded with it. But if I were growing wheat... Here's your corn then, seed. Um, I, I'd rather have wheat. Wheat? Didn't you say... Look, look, I came in here to buy wheat, and that's what I'm going to buy. Well, whatever you say, but uh, I'll take this back and get you wheat, mister. Uh, mister... Yeah, all right, all right. I... Oh, that's a good thing I'm not a Mr. Man. Granby! Yeah, what is it? <laughs> I just wanted to show you I never forget a name. <laughs> Yes, sir, I'll plant wheat. Good thing I'm not the kind of man who gets panicky and is easily swayed. Let them all grow corn. But when there's a shortage of wheat, who'll have it? Me. Uh, here's your wheat. Oh, yeah. Those bags here are heavy. Hmm. Well, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, well, I hope you have better luck than Tom Henderson. Oh, I never could understand him. He was a farmer for 30 years, and when everybody was growing corn... He thought he'd be smart and plant wheat. Uh, did you say he was a farmer for 30 years? Yeah. Uh, say, do you want me to help you out to your car with this wheat seed? No, thanks. No, thanks. Uh, I can manage it. Goodbye. So long. Uh, Mr. Kimball? Yes? Would you mind changing this wheat for corn? <laughs>
show only ran for eight weeks, but Jay Summers brought it to TV as Green Acres in 1965, starring Eddie Albert and Ava Gabor. A benefit of radio as opposed to all the other forms of show business. Radio stimulated the imagination. When you had a mystery show on radio and that creaking door opened, the people listening, their hair literally stood on end and you looked over your shoulder, you really shivered a little bit because each person listening imagined the most horrible thing that they could think of that would show up when the door opened. On television, you open the door and there's some idiot standing there or there's somebody with a wild makeup on and fangs hanging out and all sorts of wild-looking eyes. And half the time you want to laugh because they're so damn ridiculous, if you pardon the word damn. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. The makers of Camel Cigarettes present Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. cigarette be. One puff won't tell you. Richard Diamond, Spit Private Detective, premiered on April 24, 1949. The series moved from NBC to ABC in January of 1951 and switched sponsors from Rexall to Camel Cigarettes. It now aired Fridays at 8 p.m. It was the one night where ABC could claim rating supremacy with five of the top eight programs. Virginia Gregg was Diamond's girlfriend, Helen. Arthur Q. Bryan, famous as the voice of Elmer Fudd, replaced Ed Bagley as Lieutenant Levinson. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. It was cold out, and it had been raining. When it got a little warmer, it would probably snow. The whole city was covered with a heavy sheet of ice, and the steam heat in my office gurgled and clouded up the windows. I was feeling pretty good. I was warm. 
I'd had one client in the past week and my bank account was on its way to recovery and a good breakfast in the drugstore downstairs had made me comfortable and drowsy. I put my feet up on the desk, leaned back in my chair, and closed my eyes. Mr. Diamond? Mr. Diamond? I must have been napping and didn't know it. I hadn't heard the door open, but there he stood, framed in the door, resting his weight on the jam, and looking across the room at me with tired eyes. Mr. Diamond? Uh, oh yes, uh, what can I do for you? My name is Abel Gunther. I want to hire you. All right, Mr. Gunther. I charge a hundred a day in expenses. I don't think I can pay it. I can pay you some, but I don't think I can pay you that much. Well, that's my fee for you or Rockefeller. I got expenses. I see. Well, I'll keep looking. I need help. Perhaps you could recommend someone? Uh, you'll pardon me for saying so, but you don't look too well, Mr. Gunther. I'm pretty sick, Mr. Dunn. Maybe you'd better sit down and tell me what your problem is. I can't afford the money. That's all right. Tell me about it anyway. I think I had better sit down. Yes, you better. What's wrong? You got the flu or something? No, no. I'm afraid it's a little more serious. Would you really like to hear my story? I think I really would. I'm a farmer, Mr. Diamond. My home is Haiti, near Saint-Lazare. Haiti? Yes. The West Indies. I, I was born there, raised there. My parents died when I was 13. I have a wife. She's there now, and she's the main reason I have come here seeking help. My wife is dying, Mr. Diamond. I must get help quickly before it is too late. I have a farm. He kept talking, telling me about his life on Haiti. He told me about his farm, a fairly good-sized farm by his description. He told me how in the past two years things began to go wrong on his farm. And soon all the farms First, in the area fires. were also having the trouble. The cane fields would burn every year. Then it was the cattle. One by one they became sick. Then my wife and now me. And you don't know what's wrong with either of you, huh? Yes and no. My Christian religion fights it, but my life on Haiti has taught me deep respect for it. Respect for what? Voodoo, Mr. Diamond. Oh, I, I know just what you're thinking. But a doctor in Haiti has examined my wife and can find nothing wrong. Well, I don't particularly believe in anything like that, Mr. Gunther. But if you do, why have you come to me? I said I have a healthy respect for it. I don't entirely believe it, but some of the things I've seen make it difficult to disbelieve. I came to you because I suspect a possibility of something more. Immediately after my wife was taken ill, I received an offer from my farm, a very low offer from a Saint-Léger banker. I investigated, found it had been made in the interests of one Arthur Cotswold. Arthur Cotswold. Katie's biggest planter. Oh. Well, how about the other farmers? They received offers like mine. Being the oldest farmer, the rest looked to me for guidance. I told them to wait. Then I came here to hire someone to look into the matter. Would you like some water? No. No, thank you. I'm all right. Uh, anyone else become ill besides you and your wife? Yes. Several others. I... I have $368 in my ticket home. The money is yours if you will go to Haiti and investigate. Have you been to a doctor here in New York? No. Mr. Diamond here's directions how to get to my farm. My servant, little Shiva, is there. No one knows I came. Mr. Gunther. Mr. Gunther. Homicide. Hello, Walt. Oh, Rick. Yeah. 
Better get up to my office. I've got a dead man for you. Are you kidding? That's what Gunther told me. Voodoo? Voodoo smoodoo. That's what the man said. Now, steady, boy. Oh, stop it, Walt. You know I don't believe it. But you're going down to Haiti. Well, somebody's got to tell the wife. The local authorities can do that. Hey. No, what's the matter? The local authorities in Haiti. Why didn't Gunther go to them if he thought there was something phony about the setup? You want an opinion? If you can strain one out. Well, Gunther probably didn't go to the Haiti authorities because he knew they'd think just what you're thinking. Okay, so I'm crazy. Well, Gunther died in my office. He came a long way for help, and the poor guy wanted to give me his last $368. So I'm going to Haiti. I'll send you a zombie. Walt promised to send a wire and care of the authorities in saint Leger as soon as he got an autopsy report on Mr. Gunther, and I headed to the airline's ticket office. By 8 o'clock that evening, I was in an airline's flagship at 12,000 feet heading for the West Indies and Haiti. The trip wasn't bad. We landed in Miami, where I grabbed a cup of coffee and then climbed aboard a clipper for Port-au-Prince. At Port-au-Prince, I took a bus to Saint-Léger, and from there a beaten-up taxi to the Gunther Farm, about 10 miles into the country. As we neared the farm, I could see a crowd of people standing around in front of the house, and as I climbed out of the cab and approached them, they turned and their hushed conversations were suddenly stilled. I didn't know what it was. No one said a word. But something was wrong. I could feel it. I walked through the crowd to the house and stopped cold as the door opened. Who are you? I'd never seen anything like him. He was a native and he ducked his head as he stepped out of the door to face me. He was a good seven feet tall, or maybe more. He must have weighed close to 300. He stood on his bare feet, his long, muscled arms hanging loosely at his sides, and looked at me with dark, shining eyes. Me, little Chiva, who are you? Oh, me, very little Richard Diamond. Mr. Gunther hired me to come here. You from New York? Oh, yes. Mr. Gunther couldn't come back. He died. That's right. How did you know? You come in? Uh, sure. What are all those people doing out there? Their friends, madam. She died too. Little Chiva led the way into the bedroom where Mrs. Gunther lay on the bed, covered with a fresh white sheet. Her eyes closed in death, her face drawn and tired. Little Chiva told me she had died the day before, about three in the afternoon and a cold chill ran up my back. I remembered her husband lying on the floor of my office about three o'clock in the afternoon, the day before. What do you do here? Uh, Mr. Gunther wanted me to find out why the cattle are getting sick, why the fields are burning, why he and his wife became ill. Bad voodoo. Well, he thought it might have something to do with a man named Cotswold. He big man. What are those drums? For madam and mister. They voodoo. Good voodoo. Give blessing for spirit for madam and mister. Oh. You, uh... You see, little Chiva, the mister, uh, Mr. Gunther, wanted me to help him. He paid me money to help him and died asking for help. I'm going to try and do what I can. The madam and mister, good people. Teach little Chiva. 
They take little Chiva when he's small boy and make good life. You good man, little Chiva help you. Right then, I inherited little Chiva. And if there was going to be any trouble, the giant servant would certainly help to make up the difference. The first thing I wanted to do was contact the local authorities in Saint-Léger. And little Chiva told me my man was one Inspector Laplanche. A very fine person, Mr. Gunther. I'm sorry he's dead. Well, how'd everybody know he was dead? On Haiti, things of such nature are never a secret. The natives know. Voodoo? Being a stranger to Haiti, Mr. Diamond, I expect you to be a skeptic. But uh, you believe in voodoo? Let us say I have been in Haiti too long not to believe. Well, Gunther thought the whole thing might have something to do with a man named Cotswold. I would suggest you forget Mr. Cotswold. Then I suggest you give me a good reason to forget him. Mr. Cotswold is a very big man on Haiti, the largest plantation owner in the West Indies, and a self-made man with a considerable temper. Well, thanks for the advice, Inspector. But supposing I come up with something incriminating... If Mr. Cotswold has breached the law, it would certainly be my duty to arrest him. But I am not considering the arrest. More, the necessary steps that would have to be taken to prove the guilt. Dangerous steps, Mr. Diamond. One might trip on those steps. And break his neck. Yes. <laughs> you like the middle of the road, huh? It is much easier to see what is ahead. It's possible to get run down from behind. I do as much as I can to prevent that possibility. Example, my suggestion, you forget, Mr. Cotswold. I left the philosophical inspector and went outside where little Chiva had been waiting. Every time I looked at Chiva, it was like a little kid spotting the Empire State for the first time. He smiled a mouthful of white teeth as he said, The inspector, he say forget Mr. Cotswold. That's right. What do you think, little Chiva? I think I do what you want. You know what I want? You want to go see Cotswold. Hmm. Think I'm crazy? You're not afraid. You're not strong like little Chiva. But little Chiva think of all the men he know. You would fight hardest. I don't like to fight little Chiva. Little Chiva know that. We go see Cotswold. Little Shiva led the way up a long, narrow road surrounded on both sides by high sugarcane fields. Somewhere from not too far away, I heard the drums start again. Little Shiva stopped, looked off to the north. He began moving his shoulders, slowly keeping time to the steady rhythm of the drums. He began to sing softly. Well, ratings were down to 8.5 with the move to ABC. The quality of the stories remains solidly B-grade and fun. The show would be sponsored by Camels until departing for summer break in June. It returned in the fall for one season under Rexall, before leaving the air in the spring of 1952. CBS brought Diamond back for a summer run in 1953. Powell moved into directing. Richard Diamond became a TV show in 1957 starring David Jansen. Later I must leave you. For more information on how NBC launched Diamond in 1949, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 111. He continued his little chant until we reached the beginning of a long high fence running along next to the narrow road. Chiva leaned down and swung a gate open. Then we walked up the path that led through the Cotswold property until we reached the house. There, sitting back between two huge trees,
I uh, found a note someplace that said another actor playing Mike Shaw, or at one time who played Mike Shaw on the Tom Mix show, was a fellow by the name of Waterman. Yes, Willard Waterman. <laughs> That's right. Yes, well, Willard Waterman, as a matter of fact, when I left there, I had to find about three people to succeed me in various characters uh-huh. on that show and another one. And Willard Waterman had a voice similar to mine. And later on, of course, when I left the Gildersleeve show because of an impasse with a sponsor, uh-huh. he played Gildersleeve. You probably know that. Oh, of course, sure. You're up on your trivia and all that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he also did the ill-fated television version. Unfortunately, yes. it was a kind of a bad series, and they dumped it. Al Perry spent the 1940s starring on radio and in films as Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. Gildersleeve began as a character on Fibber McGee and Molly. Perry joined the cast in 1937, playing every kind of bit part imaginable. In the late 1930s, he approached Don Quinn with an idea for a regular role. He wanted to play a pompous windbag who himself ran the biggest bluff in Wistful Vista. He thought it the perfect foil for McGee. Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve's first appearance was on September 26, 1939. That, mm-hmm. See, after they called the character Throckmorton, then uh-huh. I moved in next door. Uh-huh. And you remember, I was his neighbor. Uh-huh. And I even had a wife on the show. She was never heard. So that when I made the transition from my own show and became a bachelor, mm-hmm. well, I, uh, I don't think I even had one letter asking, what happened to your wife? Because <laughs> no one ever had ever heard of her. The Great Gildersleeve became radio's first major spin-off series, debuting on NBC on August 31, 1941. In Summerfield, he was guardian to niece and nephew Marjorie and Leroy Forrester. Marjorie was studious and seldom gave Gildy trouble. Leroy, age 12, was the wise guy. The household also had a voice for common sense, Bertie Lee Coggins, introduced in September. There was a somewhat of a difference between the Gildersleeve character that was on the Fibber McGee show and then the what would it have been, a warmer character, perhaps, well, that, yes. that you created for yes, the... I was an antagonist, you know, to McGee uh-huh. on his show, uh-huh. which, when I left, that's what Gail Gordon became, Mayor uh, Latrivia. McGee yes. had to have somebody that he could fight all the time. Mm-hmm. When I decided to do my own show, of course, why, then I warmed the character up a little bit, even changed the, uh, the attitude, you know, mm-hmm. so that he became a warmer person. And because he had a family to raise... And it wasn't too difficult to do. All I had to do was kind of lighten up the voice a little bit and make the laugh a little more human. We were just lucky. I just happened to hit the air at the right time and made it, you know? By the autumn of 1943, Perry had become a film star. The radio show's rating peaked with a 16.3 in 1944. It was notable because the program served as a Sunday lead-in to Jack Benny. A 16.3 was the highest rating ever for a program airing at 6.30 p.m. Perry played the character throughout the rest of the decade, but in 1949 and 50, Jack Benny, Amos and Andy, Red Skelton, Bing Crosby, and Burns and Allen all jumped to CBS. Perry jumped with them, but there were two problems. He didn't own the Gildersleeve character, and Kraft Foods wasn't interested in making the jump. Well, that was a sad day for uh, the fans well, of uh, Hal Perry. It was for me and for 
a great many people who wrote me thousands of letters asking me why I had done such a thing. They thought that I had sold out for a lot of money. Uh-oh. And as one person said, left us in the lurch. Uh-huh. Well, that wasn't the condition at all. I didn't want to go into any detail or the press or to anybody in particular. Uh-huh. We were all friends, and it was just one of those things. You know? Well, when exactly did you exit from the uh, Great Gildersleeve character? In 51. In 51? Yes, I played it for actually 11 seasons. Uh-huh. From about 39? From 41 to 51, but it was over 11 seasons, you know. Oh, I see, I see. I started the character, you know, on Fever McGee in 1937. Right. That's that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, and then it, I played it until 1951. Perry actually departed Gildersleeve in the spring of 1950. Simultaneously, NBC and Kraft had no intention of canceling the show. Enter actor Willard Waterman. Actually, the strange thing that happened was at Hal Perry. That was the time that CBS was rating all of the NBC talent. Hal's agent had signed him to CBS. Kraft decided they did not want to change networks, and so it had to recast Gildy. And Hal and I had a voice similarity. It finally came down to the fact that I felt, and Frank Pittman, who was the producer, felt that I could do it without having to do an imitation. It worked out very nicely. It would have been dangerous for someone to imitate Hal Perry. I think you yeah. couldn't you really couldn't well, carry that off. It was a difficult decision because they weren't decided. The producers weren't quite sure whether they wanted to try to keep the voice somewhat the same or whether they wanted a completely mm-hmm. different voice. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it because I took those, a career chance, I guess. Because if I had failed with it, I'd have been out of my ear. So we finally did a reading with the writers. The character was so well written. I found that I could play it. As I say, our voice similarity, my voice is a little bit deeper than Hal's, but the quality was there, voice quality was there. I didn't have to make any conscious effort to do any imitation or anything like that. One rather strange thing that a lot of people don't understand, the Gildersleeve laughed. <laughs> was really Hal's. He used it as Gildersleeve. When I came into the picture, I decided I didn't want to use it because he used to use that, do a character on called Professor Rollo on a show we did in Chicago called Thank You Stooge. It was Bernadine Flynn. Mm-hmm. And I never did the laugh. I mean, I laughed, but not that laugh. And I used to do what they called the Gildersleeve social chuckle. The <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> That's uh, right. That's but right. I, I didn't do the laugh. Uh-huh. And still, to this day, if I'm introduced to somebody and they say, oh, you were Gildersleeve, let me hear you laugh. Because mm-hmm. it was so well ingrained in the character. Did you um, find it difficult to follow Hal Perry? No, I didn't. Because, as I say, the writing was so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. John Elliott and Andy White and Paul West, who were writing the show, wrote it so wonderfully that I just played the character. Hal and I had been friends and and still continue to be friends. I've seen him through the years a lot and we get along very well. Uh, I think Hal may have been a little resentful at the time, but I I don't think he, for the the long range, he was. Waterman debuted as Gildersleeve on September 6, 1950, in an episode entitled Marjorie is Pregnant. On his opener, 
He won over the studio audience almost to the point of receiving an ovation at the broadcast's close. Such a little fellow, new to the world. And his bright little eyes look up at you, so wide and wondering. His little feet kick the blanket away, and there's his toes. Ten of them. Then one of his little hands comes up and kind of touches your cheek. And he smiles. Let me hold him, Monk. Greg Gildersleeve is played by Willard Waterman. The show is written by Paul West, John Elliott, and Andy White with music by Robert Armbruster. Included in the cast are Walter Tetley, Mary Lee Robb, Dick Crenna, Lillian Randolph, Earl Ross, Dick LeGrand, and Arthur Q. Bryan. This is John Easton saying goodnight for the Kraft Foods Company, makers of the famous line of Kraft quality food products. Be sure to listen in next Wednesday and every Wednesday for the further adventures of the great Gildersleeve. Meanwhile, CBS had to scramble to come up with a new show for Perry. On September 17, 1950, Honest Harold debuted. The first episode played on real life. Harold lost his job at the radio station. The Harold Perry Show. And now, Harold Perry is Honest Harold the Homemaker. The town of Melrose Springs boasts one radio station and one newspaper, both owned by an old boaster named Mr. Carruthers. One of the things he doesn't boast about is a radio program on his station called Honest Harold the Homemaker. Why? Well, you'll find out. Listening to Honest Harold is a morning must in Melrose Springs, especially with the ladies. Shall we join them? Well, good morning, girls. Are you ready? <laughs> oh, woman likes to be told that her hair is fine as gold. She may know that you're her feller, but it's better when you tell her a woman likes to be told yes indeed time to visit with your old teller honest harold the homemaker bringing you news views and clues to good products <laughs> by the way girls i have a very important announcement to make later in the program that concerns all of you so please stand by but first our postman little billy the mighty might and ex-jockey good morning ladies Pal, pal, the outstanding letter today is from a lady in Charlieville. Charlieville, eh? Well, thank you, Billy. Thank you. Now, let's see. Uh, she says, uh, Last week, I started trading with a different grocer. When the boy arrived with the delivery, I asked him his name. He said, Truman. I said, Is that your last name? He said, Yes, ma'am. My first name is Harry. <laughs> Harry Truman, I said? That's a pretty well-known name. He said, It ought to be. I've been delivering groceries around here for four years. <laughs> And now, girls, let's get serious for a moment. The other day, a very high-pressure salesman from California 
sold me on the idea of introducing a new shampoo product on this program. Because it was new and not fully tried and tested, I asked all you ladies to accept a free sample and then report to me. Since then, I've tried it, and I've had numerous complaints from you girls, so I'm canceling the account right now. I'm mad. I may get into a little trouble about this, but I want you to know that Grandma Llewellyn's liquid lather shampoo will never be mentioned on this program as long as I have anything to say about it. Good morning, Station KHJP. After two weeks, CBS moved the new series to Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Gildy was airing at 8.30 over NBC. Radio Life gave Waterman a glowing review, while Perry's show was considered an unmitigated flop. Honest Harold would only air for one season. Willard Waterman would spend the rest of the decade occupying the role, like on October 31, 1951, when Gildy found the lost boy on Halloween. The Kraft Foods Company presents Willard Waterman as the Great Gildersleeve. The Great Gildersleeve is brought to you partially transcribed by the Kraft Foods Company. And Kraft, you know, makes the famous pasteurized processed cheese food, Velveeta. Velveeta has a wonderful cheddar cheese flavor that's rich yet delightfully mild. It's delicious, and it's the finest quality cheese food you can buy because it's made by Kraft, the name that for years has meant only the finest in cheese and cheese foods. Get a package or loaf of Velveeta tomorrow and enjoy the cheese food of top quality, Velveeta, made only by Kraft. Well, there's a nip in the air this morning. The shocks of yellowing corn are frosty in the fields. The pumpkins have been harvested and given faces with toothy grins, for it's Halloween. In the schools, the children are fidgeting at their desks with impish gleams in their eyes, waiting for darkness to fall. In Floyd's Barbershop, the great Gildersleeve is getting himself a Halloween haircut. Careful with the scissors, Floyd. I'm watching, Commish. Floyd, what'll we jolly boys do tonight? You don't hold your head still. The rest of us might be attending a wake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's Halloween. We should do something special. You mean you ain't booked for tonight? What do you mean by that? Well, since that classy Mrs. Winthrop come to town, you ain't had time for us jolly boys. Yeah, oh, Floyd, you know the club comes first with me. Yeah, I thought sure you'd be stepping out. Well, she's busy. Yeah, I mean, she's going to a shindig at the country club. Ah, and you ain't invited, huh? You mean all my tonsorial skill has went for no avail? (laughs) Well, I'm afraid so, Floyd. We fellas should be able to cook up something. Well, we can come down to the club and sing. You will be minus our base. Police Chief Gates has to be on duty tonight to keep an eye on the kids. Yeah. When we was kids, we used to give our constable a bad time. Yeah, I guess we all did. I remember one Halloween we soaped the windshield of his old Model T and dared him to catch us. You were asking for it, Floyd. Nah, we had an ace up our sleeve. He jumped in the car and took off. But we had his rear axle chained to a fire hydrant. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You should be glad you wasn't the water commissioner that night. (laughs) Well, there you are, Commish. 
You want to look at yourself in the mirror or just go out happy? <laughs> yeah, it looks fine. You, you know, Floyd, I have an idea. No kidding. You know, I don't we Jolly Boys throw a party for the kids tonight. They'll enjoy it and we'll help keep them out of mischief. Oh, let them live, Commish. Now, Floyd, a lot of communities do things like this. We can stock the club with apples, noisemakers, candy, and games. Well, I suppose the kids will have fun, and we'll be doing Chief Gates a good turn. You bet. We'll notify the judge and Peavy, and everybody will have a great time. You'll take some money out of the treasury and buy prizes for the best costumes. Hey, you can wrap some vines around your neck and win a prize. You got a head like a pumpkin. (laughs) Only kidding, Commissioner. Quite a night. You know, all the jolly boys went for my idea. I don't know what they do without me. Mm. It's only five o'clock. Hardly dusk yet. Are the black cats out already? Yeah, but that's Leroy behind the hedge. I'll sneak around the other side and take him by surprise. Kids can't wait until dark to scare somebody. Well, I'll turn the tables on him. Yipe! <laughs> Leroy! Hi, Unc. Sorry you come and thought I'd scare you. Well, you didn't. What are you doing with those batteries behind the hedge? I got an electric wire running to the front doorknob, but it isn't working. Oh? What's it supposed to do? Oh, it's a neat trick for tonight. I wire it to somebody's doorknob, then ring the bell and run. When they open the door, they get a shock. <laughs> Leroy, come in the house. Well, I have a much better idea about how you should spend your evening. Yeah? Step inside, my boy. Oh! Hey, now it's working! Leroy! It's tricks like this I want to talk to you about. Sorry, young. Well, I'll overlook it this time. Leroy, rather than go running all over town tonight, how would you like to come up to the Jolly Boys Club to a party? A party? Yep. We're throwing a party for all the kids. The judge, Peavy, and Floyd. We've all chipped in to buy apples and candy and soda pop. All you can eat, and you may win a prize. Gee, that's keen. Can I play that corny piano, Unc? Sure. Anything you want to do, Leroy. It's kids' night tonight. Oh, boy. I'm going to the Jolly Boys. I'm going to take a bath. <laughs> he wants to take a bath? <laughs> this is a better idea than I thought. Hello, Marjorie. What's Leroy so excited about? Well, the Jolly Boys decided to entertain the kiddies this evening. Oh? Show them a good time and keep them out of trouble. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Mine. (laughs) Unky, Mrs. Winthrop phoned a little while ago. She did? Mm Mm-hmm. She's at the country club and wants you to call her there. Well, I'll call her right away. Unky, what if she invite you out there tonight? Well, that'd be a little awkward. And the Jolly Boys... Hello? Will you page Mrs. Winthrop, please? Thank you. Yeah, I wonder if she does want me to join her party. Well, she's too late. I just have to tell her I have other commitments. Just her hard luck. Hello, Paula. This is Throckmorton. Is that Halloween dinner dance? Thanks for inviting me, but... Well, it's like this, Paula. I... 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 I'll be there. <laughs> Shh, 
Marjorie. What's that, Paula? Oh, no. I was going to the Jolly Boys Club, but they'll understand. See you around eight-ish. Goodbye. <laughs> what a woman. Uncle Mort, I know you'd rather be with Mrs. Winthrop, but what about your party? Oh, Marjorie, the party will go along just the same. I've arranged everything. Jolly Boys will have fun. The kids will have fun. I'm the only one who'll be missing out. All right, Unky. Sure. I'll run down to Peavy's and explain that I'm needed elsewhere. After all, I've made my contribution. I sparked the idea. Leroy, disconnect the door now. Hello, Peavy. Hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. (laughs) What can I do for you? Uh, Peavy. About the Jolly Boys party tonight. Well, I'm ready for it. I'm here to tell you. Yes. Well, look at this box of favors I have for the kids. False faces, noisemakers. Nice. Mm, Horns. Just listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you'll have a lot of fun, Pete. Oh, I'm sure we will. Greetings, gentlemen. Well, hello, John. Hello, Horace. Gildy, I saw you come in. I want to find out what costume you're wearing to our party tonight. Your costume? Is the water commissioner coming as a big, fat mermaid? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Judge, I was about to tell Peavy. I thought I'd fool everybody and come as a witch. A witch, Peavy? Yes, but Mrs. Peavy is using the broom this evening. (laughs) Her garden club is having a party, too. Well, whatever we wear, we'll all have a wonderful time. Gildy, you did a splendid thing when you suggested our little party. I congratulate you. Mr. Gildersleeve's all right. Well, thank you, fellows. But as I've been trying to say, I mean, I hope you'll all have a good time. Unfortunately, I won't be able to attend. How's that? (laughs) What's the trouble, Gildy? No trouble, Judge. And I'm sure you men will understand the situation when I explain. Well, start explaining. (laughs) Well, there's nothing I have to apologize for, Petey. I've done my duty to the Jolly Boys party. I got it rolling. I'm sending food and favors. If I have to miss the party, it's my loss. Well, stop beating around the bush and tell us. Gilday, could it be that you've made a date with Mrs. Winthrop? No, Judge. Well, actually, she made it with me. Oh, fiddlesticks. (laughs) (laughs) She did, Pete. She phoned and asked me to join her for the dance. I'm sorry, fellows. Well... Got to run. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Peavy, aren't you going to say goodbye to me? I'm not going to say anything to you, turncoat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't go to both parties. Can I help it if I'm wanted in two places at once? It just happens that I'm popular. Well, now, I would not say that. It's 8 o'clock. I'm doing Paula's party right now. You wonder why it's always so hard to get a collar button in. Oop. You dropped it. <laughs> now where'd it go? You must have rolled into the dresser. Ew. Well, I... Uncle Mort. Yes, Marjorie. Bronco and I are leaving now. You're all right, my dear. 
You wish I was. Anki, don't forget to lock the garage door. Yeah, I won't. Everybody's off to their parties but me. You want to leave everything for me to do. Yeah, yeah here's my collar button. What happened to it? Oh, it's a dime. Doorbell, Bertie! I did it! Confusion. Yeah, here it is. Dizzy. Good thing I have one of those snap-on bow ties. I can fix it on the way down to the car. Where's my coat? I can't. I get my arm through this sleeve. My coat's not that tight. Over. Bertie! Bertie, who sewed my sleeves together? Leroy wanted my needle and thread. <laughs> Coat sleeves. You yeah, what a boy. I'll rip it out, Mr. Gilsey. Yeah, thanks, Bertie. Who was at the door? Another trick-or-treater. Good thing you stocked up with treats. Well, Halloween's for the youngsters, Bertie. Yes, sir, and they're sure having fun tonight. Bertie's giving handouts to spooks, black cats, skeletons, and to one boy dressed like a gorilla. I hope that was a boy dressed like a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, chances are it was. Bertie. Yes, sir. Mr. Gilsey, I have to get the scissors for this guy. Well, please hurry, Bertie. I'm late for a very important date. Yes. I did it! <laughs> Never mind, Bertie. You get the scissors, I'll get the door. Hope the candy holds up. Uh, well. Hello. Hello. You're the smallest ghost we've seen. Why'd you bother to ring the bell? Why didn't you just come in under the door? <laughs> I'm lost. Lost? Oh, my goodness. You're awfully small to be out alone, aren't you? I wasn't alone when I started, but I couldn't keep up. Yeah. I guess it would be pretty hard to get around in that flour sack. What's your name, little boy? Mike. Mike who? Mike Smith. You. Smith. Well, there are a lot of those. <laughs> There's your comfort still, sleeve. Oh, who's that little fella? A little lost ghost, Bertie. <laughs> lost? Yeah. How'd you get lost, honey? They ran away from me. He couldn't keep up with the other kids, Bertie. Yeah, I wonder if I could find them. Oh, Mr. Gilsey, you run on to your party. They'll come looking for him. Yeah, I guess so. What if they don't? I'll call you at the country club, and I'll call the police. Well, I... Gosh. Oh, Mr. Gilsey, be scared. Look at the little fella grab you round the legs. <laughs> don't you run away from me, too? Oh, Mike, you don't need me. You, Bertie will take good care of you until your friends come back. If they don't find you, the police chief is a pal of mine. He'll get you home. You see... I have a date. You understand, don't you, Mike? Hmm? Oh, the date can wait. You did the radio builder sleeve right to the very end of radio. Near the end, I think. I think we were the last. 15 minute shows, then, weren't you? For uh, two years. The sleeve will be back in just a minute. Before the end of Era, uh, we did it as a five-week, 15-minute show, mm -hmm. and it was very, very popular at that time. And then we went back after Crash dropped it. 
we went back to a half-hour format. And uh, we were, I think, the last audience mm. show in, in uh, Hollywood. By uh, that time, you were only doing one show then. Yeah. You weren't doing two shows, one for the East Coast and one for the West Coast, were you? No, we, by that time, it was uh, on tape. We did the East Coast show, and the second was on tape. But that took a long time to happen because Kraft had a very adverse feeling about tape. They didn't like tape. <laughs> the way we got to taping, under Kraft's supervision anyway, I had to have an appendectomy. So I recorded at that time the first scene and the last scene for what was to be the next show. And I did the show one Wednesday, went in Thursday morning to the hospital and had my operation. And in actuality, I could have done the show the next week, but they uh, did this to protect themselves. And then later when they found out that it, it didn't change the show any, why we were able to go to tape. So the other ca actors did the show live, but they, they inserted, the your, inserted your record. Your, yeah, the record opening and the record yeah. close. So you were kind of written out of the I body home, of the I show. I stayed home and listened to the show. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. Earlier this morning, the great Gildersleeve didn't know how he was going to spend Halloween, so he promoted a party at the Jolly Boys Club. But he ducked out on that when he had a chance to have a date with the attractive Mrs. Winthrop. Then, a little lost boy attached himself to the water commissioner. Now, Mike, how long had you been lost from your little friends when you stopped in here to trick-or-treat? I don't know. Well, we call all the Smiths in the telephone directory. You don't belong to any of them. <laughs> what's your father's first name? I don't know. Uh, what's your mother's name? Mama. <laughs> Did the general public realize that there was a change of lead actors in the Great Gildersleeve back uh, I in think, that time? I think many of them did not know. Mm -hmm. It was one of the things that the billing was different, but in those days people didn't pay all that much attention to billing. Mm -hmm. The voice had enough similarity that a lot of people, for a long time anyway, didn't know there was a change. I guess some people don't, still don't know. The name uh, Gildersleeve is bigger than the name Perry or Waterman. Neither one of us have that personal identification. Mm -hmm. Oh, you, have the, you have the personal identification with the role of the great Gildersleeve. Well, a lot, of, lot of people do, yes. a lot of people still say, oh, that was Hal Perry. Mm -hmm. And as I say, we both did it for nine years, so... Yeah. It's amazing that that show ran that long. I, I can't imagine that Hal Perry would have thought in, uh, you know, 1949, 1950, when he you took it over in 50, didn't 50, you, at the yeah. beginning of that? Did you think that it was going to last for, you know, I, that many more years? I had no idea at the time how long it would last. I think that Hal maybe got a little short shrift from his agent because they thought they could deliver the show to CBS, mm -hmm. and they signed him to the contract. So now... He was under contract at CBS. They had to produce a show for him. So they started a show called Honest Herald. Mm -hmm. And I think it was unfortunate. What they tried to do was pattern the show after the Gildersleeve show. And, of course, Gildersleeve was still on, mm -hmm. on NBC. So it didn't work. And it was too bad because Hal was a very, very versatile actor. 
He could do many, many, many voices, many, many things. And it would have been far better for him, I believe, had he developed another character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and a new show around it. And then that would have been, as the pattern was, gone on to television. It would have, would have been another new good show, mm-hmm. radio, mm-hmm. television show. But with the sort of a copy of Gildersleeve, it just didn't work. Mary, no! God, let let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course. The sound is coming from the basement. It's all right. I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. first story editor on Escape was a man named John Meston. John Meston went on from being story editor at CBS out on the coast to being creator of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, oh yes. And John Meston was followed by John Dunkel, a very, very intellectual type fellow. And it was John Meston and John Dunkel who were principally responsible for the selection of the material and the acquisition of it. Their contribution was superb. Practically never did I disagree with them. So if you were complimenting the quality of the material on Escape, those were the two men who were responsible for it. The quality of the production was mine when I was doing it. Other people also did the show through the years. In the summer of 1954, Escape was in its last season on CBS. The 229th episode was an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's The Birds. A guest starred Ben Wright, Virginia Gregg, and John Daner. George Walsh announced, By 1954, these Hollywood radio actors had spent nearly two decades in each other's company. I gotta get even with John Daner. We were doing a romance. Just two of us. That's the name of a show. I don't know. Anyway, the very last speech of the show was mine, and it was long. It was about a half a page. And I believe that the very last sentence was, yes, Hans, or whoever, I really do love you. Well, usually you look up and you act to the actors, but this was a long, involved thing. So I read it down to that last line, which I had memorized, 
And I looked up, and John Daner is standing across the microphone from me with his eyes crossed. I'm sure everybody listening thought that was a dramatic pause. I was taking. I'll get even with him someday. I haven't managed to do it yet. During its heyday, Escape was produced and directed by William N. Robeson, as Harry Bartell remembered. All I know is that some of the finest roles and some of the most classic stories came up on that show. That was Norm MacDonald's show, by the way. Bill Robeson did it for a while. Working with Bill Robeson was always interesting because there was a lunch break. The first two acts would be rehearsed in tremendous detail with extreme synchronization of sound effects and balance and everything. And after lunch, we never got around to the third act of the dress rehearsal. (laughs) And so the last part of the show was always sort of winged. (laughs) Probably the best part. Although it was frequently dropped and moved around the network schedule, it was popular enough amongst listeners and the CBS brass too to consistently come back. However, the summer of 1954 was a time of numerous show cancellations. When Escape broadcast this adaptation of The Birds on July 10th, the writing was on the wall. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are in a farmhouse on the southern coast of England, the autumn countryside around you desolate and bleak. And you know that in the dusk outside, waiting patiently for you, silently watching for you, is an enemy from whom there may be no escape. Listen now as Escape brings you Daphne du Maurier's story, The Birds. On December the 3rd, the wind changed overnight, and it was winter. Until then, the autumn had been mellow, soft. The earth was rich where the plough had turned it. I didn't do the ploughing, no. My wartime disability had seen to that. They gave me mostly the lighter repair jobs to do in the three days a week that I worked at the farm. A bank to build up or a gate to mend at the far end of the peninsula where the sea surrounded the farmland on either side. Deborah and I had taken a cottage up here to try again, for the sake of the children. And it seemed to be working fairly well. I enjoyed my work on the farm. It was pleasant to pause at midday to eat the lunch that Debbie prepared and brought to me. We'd sit there on the cliff while I ate and we'd watch the birds. There are many of them, Nat. Yes. Well, the autumn's better than spring for watching them. Oh, why? Oh, well, in the spring, they're content, they're full of purpose. They 
know where they're going, there's no delay. But then in autumn, it's different. The birds that don't migrate seem to follow a, a pattern of their own. Pattern? Hmm. Great flocks of them here on the peninsula. Restless, uneasy, wheeling, circling, coming to rest and flying again. The land birds and the gulls down there in the bay. Strange sort of rhythm in their movements. They don't really go anywhere. Doesn't seem to be any purpose to it. No. Well, if there is, we don't see it. The restlessness. And they're more restless this year than usual, it seems to me. Do you know this morning two gulls flew so close they knocked off my cap? Just like yesterday when the school bus let her off, there was quite a few of them overhead as if they'd been followed. Oh, well, I suppose it means a hard winter. They always seem to know. Perhaps a message comes to them in autumn. A warning. About winter. And about death. Nat. Many of them will die, and I think they know it. Perhaps they feel they have to spill their motion out before they die. Like people who know their time is up and run about stupidly driving themselves. I wish you wouldn't talk like that, Nat. That, that black side of you that stirred up the trouble between us before. Well, I'm sorry, Debbie. But it, it's come over me lately as I've watched them. The land birds mingling with the seabirds in a sort of strange, unnatural partnership. Land and sea. And life and death. That night it turned colder, yet the wind strengthened. Around two in the morning, the sound of it beating against the house woke me up. I lay there with this slow, even breathing of Debbie beside me, and I thought of Jill and Johnny in the room across the hall. We seemed safe. Secure. And then I heard it. A tapping on the window. At first I thought it was a loose shutter, and then I realized it wasn't. I got out of bed, went to the window, opened it. Suddenly something brushed against my hand. And jabbed at my knuckles, and then it was gone over the roof and behind the cottage. Nat, <laughs> what's it? Uh, it's all right, Debbie. It was a bird. I don't know what kind. Bird? Hmm. Wind must have driven it against the window, so... My hand's wet. It's blood. Hmm? It'll beggar drew blood. Go to sleep, Nat. Uh, must have been frightened and stabbed at me in the dark. Well, for the... Nat, the window seat you are rattling. I've already seen to it. It's some bird trying to get in. Mm -hmm. Send them away. I can't sleep with that noise. All right. All right. Oh, I'm off with you. Why, you little... Stay away from my face. Out! Get away! Yes. 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 in the world. Did you see that? There were half a dozen this time. They went for me. They tried to peck my eyes. Oh, Dad. I'm not making it up there. Mommy! Huh? It's Jill. Go see what's the matter. Right. Oh, Coming, Jill. They keep flying at me. Where's Johnny? Uh, uh, just flying at What's the matter? Quick, Mommy! get the children out of here. Birds! Yes. The room's up. Birds! Get the children out of here and shut the door. Quick! 
I pushed them out of the room, and now I was alone with the birds. I seized the blanket, and I used it as a weapon, sweeping it right and left. And I could hear the thud of bodies, but they kept coming at me. They were jabbing my hands, my head, trying for my eyes with beaks as sharp as pointed forks. And I wrapped the blanket around my head, beat about with my bare hands, blindly. I don't know how long I fought them. Finally, the beating of wings lessened, and then I still unwrapped the blanket from my face. The cold gray dawn had seeped into the room. The floor was littered with the tiny corpses of the birds. Robins, finches, sparrows, larks. Some had lost feathers in the fight. The others had blood, my blood, on their beaks. Sickened, I went to the window. The fierce sea broke harshly in the day. But there was not a bird in sight. Not a sparrow chattered in the hedge. No early thrush or blackbird pecked on the grass for worms. There was no sound at all but the east wind and the sea. Matt? Uh, I'm all right, Debbie. I didn't know what... You're covered with blood. Some of it's the birds. Look on the floor. Oh. Oh, So many of them. Yeah. Fifty. I counted them. It's horrible. Come on, darling. I'll clean the room later when I have more stomach for it. It must have been ghastly for you. Are the children all right? Yes. I put Jill to work making tea. Johnny's in our bed just now asleep. Not why? The birds? Well, it must be the weather. The sudden change confused them. It has to be that. The tea's ready, Mummy. Oh, good. Did you drive away the birds? Yes, they're all gone now, Jill. I hope they won't come again. Perhaps if we put breadcrumbs for them outside the window, they'll eat that and fly away. Perhaps, dear. I've already had breakfast. I'd better hurry or I'll be late for the school bus. Bus? Uh, oh, uh, I'll walk with you to the road, Jill. Yes, I think that'd be a good idea. I'll go get my coat and book. I didn't want her to walk alone. Nat, they... They wouldn't come back again. Well, I... I'll go over to the farm and find out if they heard anything during the night. You keep all the windows and doors closed, Debbie, just to be on the safe side, hmm? Hello? Anyone about? Mr. Orkin. Was the mister around, Mrs. Trigg? Uh, summer's about, but can you tell me where this cold is coming from? Russia? I've never seen such a change, and it's going on, the wireless says. Something to do with the Arctic Circle. Ah, uh, we didn't turn on the wireless this morning. <clears throat> Fact is, we had uh, trouble in the night. Oh, kiddies poorly. No, no, not exactly, no. We, we uh, had some trouble with birds. I, uh, why, it sounds absurd, but they flew in the window and attacked us. Attacked you? No, Mr. Hawkins. No, I'm not making it up, Mrs. Trigg. There are 50 dead birds on the floor of the children's bedroom. Mm, foreign birds. No. No, the kind you see about here every day. Really? Well, you ought to write up and ask the Manchester Guardian. They'd have an answer for it. Hey, morning, Hawkins. Uh, Mr. Trigg. Mr. Hawkins has been telling about some birds last night. Oh. They, uh, he says they attacked him. Attacked? Mm. Are you sure? Quite. Uh. 
Ever heard of a thing like that before? Hungry, maybe. Looking for food. Hmm. You put out some crumbs. Yes, of course. I'll be up tomorrow as usual. Good morning. Hmm. Ordinary birds, he says. Attacked him. Now, what does he take us for, coming around with a story like that? He's a strange one, he is, with those superior airs. You see the look he gave us when we didn't swallow his story? Attacked him. I think he reads too many of those books. Did you find out anything at the farm? No. The Trigg's brilliant advice was to put out some crumbs. Debbie, I looked all around this morning. There's not a single bird in sight outdoors. Where could they have gone? I don't know. The Triggs had no trouble last night. Not only that, they clearly thought I was imagining it. Oh, I heard Trigg mutter something about my superior airs and reading too many books as I walked away. Nothing's real to those clods until it hits them over the head. Well, Nice enough people, Ned. It's just that they're isolated up here. Well, that's certainly the polite word for it. I haven't been able to face going to the children's room. The birds... Oh, yes, I'll go and clean it up. I suppose the least I can do is give the little beggars a decent burial. I dropped the dead birds into a sack, went down to the beach to bury them. The wind was bitter cold. I dug a pit in the sand with my heel and started to empty the sack into it, but the wind caught the birds and whirled them along the shore. There was something ugly in the sight, that the tide would take them when it turned. I looked out at the crested breakers, and then I saw them. The gulls. Out there, riding the seas. Thousands. Tens of thousands. They rose and fell in the trough of the sea like a mighty fleet at anchor, waiting for the turn of the tide. Waiting. They stretched as far as my eye could reach. They covered the sea. I started up the steep path home, almost running. Someone should know it. Someone should be told. But who... And then, as I opened the front door, I saw Watch Debbie beside the wireless listening. Damage and even attacking individuals. It is thought that the Arctic airstream is causing the birds to migrate south in immense numbers, and that intense hunger may drive them to attack human beings. Householders are warned to see to their windows, doors, and chimneys, and to take all precautions for the safety of their children. Further bulletins will be issued later. They've been repeating it every few minutes since you left. Well... Perhaps now those empty-headed idiots at the farm will know that I got... You sound almost glad. Oh, don't talk rot, Debbie. It's just that when people with half a brain try to tell me that I... Can't you forget that superior attitude of yours, even now? Don't use that word superior to me. I'm sick of it. So am I, Nat. So am I. You... Oh, I... uh, I'm sorry, dear. This thing has made me a little nervy, I guess. Yes, I... I'm sorry, too, my dear. Nat... One of the bulletins said the birds seemed to be waiting. For what? I don't know. They said the birds are hungry. What are you doing? No, the hammer. 
I'm going to get some boards and see to the doors and windows as they tell you to. You think they could break in with the windows shut, the sparrows and robins and such? How could they? I wasn't thinking about the smaller birds. I was thinking about the gulls. The gulls? Debbie, have you ever been close enough to get a good look at a gull's beak? There must be a hundred thousand of them out there, riding the sea, waiting. There would ultimately only be seven more episodes of Escape before the show went off the air for good on September 25th, 1954. The rest of the morning I worked upstairs, boarding the bedroom windows. And I wondered whether they'd take these precautions up at the farm. I doubted it. It'd probably be a big joke to the Triggs. But according to the wireless, it was no joke. At first, some of the bulletins had been light in tone, but as the morning wore on, the concern in the announcer's voice became more and more apparent. The American people got a new toy. The men who owned the toy knew it was going to cost a great deal of money. And so they phased out radio. I told you earlier the story of the $80 savings they would make by moving suspense to New York. This is, they've got down to that. It got down from a 13-piece orchestra to an 11-piece orchestra to an 8-piece orchestra to a, a trio and finally to the organ. So it was that kind of attrition that occurred. And they killed it because you can spin records and you have a disc jockey or you can automate the whole day's programming. You have a newsman and a disc jockey and you operate. Because people went home and looked at their new toy. They weren't listening to radio. And now, as I think I said, you have a generation of people who don't know how to listen, who must have a picture to bolster up. They miss the beauty of the human voice, which is something I think you always... Well, they miss the beauty of their own imaginations. It's too much effort to think. That tube is up there. You don't have to think at all. You just sit there and eat that stuff and drink that beer and get fat. But, you know, we're never going to pull those men off the moon. No, we got to go now to Mars. I don't know why. You know, you kill a lot of men that way eventually. But once you've made that step, you can't go back. You made the step to television, you can't go back to radio. A lot of us old poops will talk as we're talking now, but my 10-year-old son couldn't care less about that. Well, it seems the clock has struck midnight on October. On our Americana road trip, we've gassed up at filling stations, stopped off at diners, and taken in the harvest season. There's only one place left to go. Home. The Columbia Workshop returns to the air. Radio's foremost laboratory for new writers and production techniques begins a new series of broadcasts to be heard each week at this time. (laughs) 
Vice President and Director of Programs of the Columbia Broadcasting System, Mr. Davidson Taylor. A great many of us at the Columbia Broadcasting System have a profound affection for the Columbia Workshop, not only because of the distinguished productions which it did during the five years it was on the air between 1936 and 1941, but also because of the remarkable talents which have first been brought to public attention by the workshop. We are happy that the stations affiliated with CBS share our affection for the Columbia Workshop, and the resumption of the Columbia Workshop broadcasts is due in large part to the demand of the CBS affiliates that it returned to the air. We think there will be general agreement that it is good not only for Columbia, but also for radio to have the workshop on the air again. We hope that the new series will stimulate the same interest in better writing and better production methods that the old series did. Appropriately, today's script is called Homecoming. The author is a young Canadian, Norman Williams of Toronto, and it is the first radio script by him ever to be broadcast in the United States. Next time on Breaking Walls, November's air brings us to homecoming dances, big football games, and Thanksgiving. And we'll find out if it's really possible to return to our roots. It may just be that Ozzie Nelson already had the answer. Yeah, you were on the way back to Rutgers that time, or you just... Yeah, we were going down, the, they had the centennial down there. It was really pretty interesting. We had a marvelous time. The first time I'd been to Rutgers in about 30 years, and I don't know if you've ever gone back to the scenes of your youth. It's a little difficult sometimes. Somebody once said that you go back to try to recapture the scenes of your youth and you get back there and you discover that what you're really trying to recapture is your youth itself. If you'd like to make a note of that, Ed, it's a, uh, and uh, if you want to throw it in from time, if the show is bubbling along too fast, you want to slow it down a little. Uh, uh, we, could get, uh, we could have a Xerox of that made up and pass. We'll have that Xerox and pass it out as the people leave tonight. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning and Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. On the interview front, Mel Blank, Dennis Day, Gail Gordon, Phil Harris, Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan Jr., Harold Perry, and Willard Waterman spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats and many others from Chuck's 40-year career at speakingofradio.com. Mel Blank, Jim Jordan, and William N. Robeson spoke with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Harry Bartell and Virginia Gregg spoke to Spurvac. For more information, go to spurvac.com. Don Quinn was interviewed by Owen Cunningham in 1951. Ozzie Nelson was a guest of Johnny Carson's in 1969. Mel Blank also spoke with Jack Carney. And Dennis Day spoke with John Dunning for his 71K and U.S. program from Denver. Selected music featured in today's episode was Autumn by Michael Silverman Ghost Bus Tours by George Fenton for High Spirits Moon by George Winston and Shine On Harvest Moon by Joan Morris and William Bolcom. Subscribe to Burning Gotham a new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com.
A special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 121 will wrap up our Americana miniseries with a focus on homecoming-related programming. This episode will be available beginning November 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until November 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls Episode 120, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.